battles are waged with mobile suits, the key to military dominance. They only hope for the colonies. Five elite soldiers and their legendary mobile suits called Gundam. This is episode 19 of uh, Gundam at MHQ. Uh, along with me always is... Sobro Ryu. And... Chris. And we have another special guest today from the Mecha Talk forums. As his codename is ArmoNT1. Just give a shout out to everyone out there, Armor. Yo, hey. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to all my friends over at Junk Guild and at the Epic Discussion Topic. So keep with it, guys. And what, and what song would you like to hear? <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Little, little goofy radio What's your anyway, favorite yeah. radio station? <laughs> Nobody and 902, who The Sturge. <laughs> and who brings you the hits? But um, uh, all, <laughs> all silliness aside, folks, uh, this is episode 19, and we is gonna be. This is gonna be a jam-packed episode as we are catching up with uh, Code Geass R2 Lelucha the Rebellion uh, reviews, going from episodes five to episode. 12. So we're going to have uh, eight episodes that we're going to talk about, but they are going to be split up in two different sections. So uh, we just wanted to get caught up with that as the show is uh, about to come to its conclusion uh, here shortly. Um, in addition, we're going to have a the sixth installment of the un- ongoing uh, series that we have, which is Gundam uh, Roundup, this time taking uh, a look at Mobile Suit Gundam F91, the uh, second the second uh, motion picture done by Tamino, and just some of our thoughts and insights of, um, of this movie. And finally, we're going to have kind of a discussion uh, that's going to be led by uh, Armuro uh, regarding some an interview uh, that was done in the last couple of weeks uh, regarding the director of Code Geass, uh, R1 and R2, uh, Goro Taniguchi, and I guess some comments that we that he has made, and we're just going to kind of briefly hit some of the things that were done and, and some of our impressions on all that. But like always, before we can start any one of these Gundams, we have to go into Neo's news, oh, and it's pretty pretty nice here. Uh, we have some quick few things um, dealing with a lot of um, a lot of double O stuff. I guess the official English site has uh, an announced some more cast announcements, and I'm sure Chris and Armro and, and uh, Solbro will know these people more than I will, because I really don't know too much about the voice actors, but I guess uh, Sumeragi is going to be voiced by uh, Alisa Ann Bailey. Oh! Uh, that's the voice of... Um, that's the voice Captain, of uh, yeah, Captain Rami is from Seed, and Relina from Wing. Oh, okay. Relina Peacecraft, yeah. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, Sorry, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Wang Lu May is going to be Mary Kay Hendrickson. Hendricks? Oh. Hendrickson? Hendricksy. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Neither do I, actually. Uh, Lassie Aon is going to be a person called Andrew Fran- Francis. Uh, Christina is going to be voiced by uh, Shannon Chan Kent. Hmm. Felt is going to be Chantel Strain. And Lighty is going to be David A.K. So any fans of those voice actors, I'm sure... Um, I'm sure you're kind of happy with some of those selections. And that's going to kind of go into another segue of um, with some of my listener-submitted news. Uh, Batusai28 also had uh, shown that there are some additional um, voice actors that have been revealed. And I guess this is something they probably do a little bit at a time. But um, everybody's favorite girlfriend, uh, Luis, is going to be done by a Kelly Sheridan. Oh. 
And <laughs> oh, poor, poor, poor Kinaway. She's going to be done by Anna Comer. <laughs> uh, and the Arthurian legend, uh, Saji Crossroad, parentheses, thank you, Batusai, 28, the second coming, is going to be <laughs> done by uh, Gabe Knoth, K-H-O-U-T-H, anyone? Kuth? Kuth. And this is funny. Parentheses, he was Nico from Seed. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, just kind Where's your King Arthur now? Just kind of wondering how that's all going to end up. Maybe His balls they, will drop eventually. Maybe they... <laughs> may, maybe uh, Mr. My Gabe... <laughs> may, maybe, uh, maybe Mr. Gabe knows something that we don't, so... Uh, can I just pop in for one second here? Sure. There, there seems to have been a little bit of nuttiness here, and I just want to make sure everyone knows um, the actor playing Lichtendahl is not David Kay, as in Trace Kusranada, Sesho Maru, and Optimus Prime and all that. He's an oh. entirely different actor who happens yeah. to have the same name. Yeah, it's just making sure, A-K. because people were going nuts over the idea that an actor of David Kay's talent was being wasted on a minor character like Lichty. Yeah, okay. I, I, was a, I was a little caught off guard with that, man. The voice of Trey's, the voice of Trey's is the voice of Lichty, man. That's, that's crazy, <laughs> No, man. I, like I said, it was yeah. David A.K. <laughs> yeah, just, just wanted to make sure everyone knew so there wasn't a storm. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you on that, because I don't want to be called misinformed again. I'm trying to keep all my facts straight here. But Wait, um, so wait, you're saying that it's not the same guy? No, it's it, another guy. It is guy. not. It is, yeah. His, oh, that he is, is crazy. He is David, David A period K. Oh, my His God. His middle initial starts with an A. Ooh, Andrew. I, I, I yeah. sit down. I, I yeah. stand down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what Armour was saying. A, yeah. a guy if, you look, if you look them up on Internet Movie Database, mm-hmm. David K, who played Trey's, is David K1, and this guy is David K2. Yeah. Wow. So, and he's yeah. a punk who just turned 20, so that makes more <laughs> sense to have him playing Lichty than, you know, yeah. a guy who's like in his courts. <laughs> yeah, because as, as I just found out that this guy, the real David K is uh, Trey's or Shomaru, it's like, Saji Crossford, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> or Lichty. <laughs> I, I think I would have I flown out to Bandai and, and just started slapping people. <laughs> <laughs> Because, <laughs> oh boy, but um, some other, uh, and Batusai28 gave me another, um, another submitted article here, and uh, this kind of goes to the WTF category. Uh, I guess it's been reported that uh, Banpresto will be releasing Zaku-themed portable ashtrays in convenience stores nationwide. That's in Japan, not in America, folks. Oh, darn it. Beginning uh, in October. And they are uh, 7.7 centimeter items. They're going to be on sale for 830 yen and will come in the mass-produced and shark custom versions. So you'll be able to ash three times quicker with the shark custom version. (laughs) And develop lung lung cancer three times faster. Yes. (laughs) But um, (laughs) once again, the the Japanese never cease to amaze us. But... um, this is kind of interesting. This is dealing with some more double O news. I guess there is going to be a drama CD call, called The Road to 2307. And it's going to be taking place before the first episode of the TV series. Mm-hmm. And one of the halves is called Angels Descend. And it depicts Sasuna meeting with the other Meisters while the, uh, the, the second part, which is entitled Union Flag, is about a younger Graham Acre. So wow. this is going to be pre... Um, you know, pre-Gundam Obsession, you know, pre-Mask and all this other 
goofy stuff with him. So, um, and with some more game news, I know we had discussed this. I don't know if we discussed this on air or off air, but the Gundam vs. Gundam game has actually been coming out for the PSP. And it's going to be showing up in Japan in November 20th. And one of the picks is it's got this, the, um, it, it's, um, it's it was uh, released in the Namkai Bandai presentation PDF from May, and it shows that there's going to be some more um, Gundam-related PSP titles coming in the future, and some of those have a sales target of 400,000 copies. Wow. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but Japan's not a very big country c- as compared to the U.S. So with some other uh, game news, we uh, Dan Geki Online. Uh, has some new screenshots of the Gundam 00 Gundam Meisters game for the PS3. So a lot PS2. of these new screen or P- I'm sorry, PS2, uh, featuring a lot of the uh, game's rivals characters. So you'll probably have, you know, um, what was it? What were all the, uh, it was like Satsuna versus Ali. Yeah. Um, Graham versus, um, oh, at the time. Graham versus uh, Harlockon, right? Yeah, Harlockon. <laughs> and, um, and then, like, what was it? Uh, Team Rocket versus um, <laughs> Tiaria. So yeah. I'm sure it's got a lot of different things on Hallelujah there. Hallelujah versus Marie. Uh, oh, not Marie. I'm sorry. Soma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <laughs> and um, with another listener submitted article, it's got some other game news. Uh, this is courtesy of Demon Lord of L5. Um, and he was saying that he, I guess he's from overseas, and he was looking at. Even though Solbro had said in an earlier episode, kind of unconfirmed, not confirmed, that this mobile ops game was going to come here, not we don't still don't really know. But I guess in Europe, uh, the, there's a release date is uh, going to be coming out. There's no release date set yet, but it does look like it's still going to be going out over in Europe. So if it doesn't get here, I'm sure we'll be able to import it that way. So all those looking forward to that game, Solbro and. Some other guy, maybe. Some I, other guy. So <laughs> I get to live vicariously through Demon Lord. Nice. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually talked to him on Xbox Live the other day. He's a really cool cat. But um, but yeah. So that you know that I I don't know when that game's ever going to be released because it seems like we've been talking about it for two years now. Never. So. <laughs> it'll be the it'll be the Duke Nukem Forever of Gundam. Oh, it I, will be. I think so. But um. I know we had talked about this in an earlier episode. The Go Go Five Fest 08 in Budokan, which was the code was Code Geass and Double O festival that they had in Budokan. Uh, I guess about twelve thousand fans reported fill, filled the arena for the special event. So, doesn't sound like a lot, but it's just a festival for two shows. Yeah. So it's not even the it's not even the category uh, the Library of Gundam, and you know Code Geass is not even what forty episodes what. 40 episodes long now maybe mm-hmm. yeah 45 so people so um, showed up in droves apparently for this yeah which is, which is so excellent. if you go to Famitsu and then Genki online they have some articles and some pictures up there so um uh, and got two more little stories and last this is the last of my uh listener submitted articles this is very disturbing uh this goes this takes WTF news to the the up the newest level <laughs> and this is a uh, courtesy of uh, Momoro and there is a website called in Japan it's a pet store website called Skip Dog <laughs> <laughs> and Skip Dog is an online Japanese pet store that specializes in things for puppies and chihuahuas Aww. 
and they are offering dog outfits for cosplay and events. Specifically, they offer <laughs> mobile suit pundum with a P and E. Pagelian, E. P. and then Agelian. Knitted hats inspired by the Mobile Suit Gundam and Evangelion anime series. Mm. The, uh, they include hats for the original Pundum, <laughs> the MP Zakpu, the MPS 006 Zeta Pundum, the PX 178 Pundum Mark II. I'm hearing Chris die inside. <laughs> the PX 78 NT1 Pundum Al- Al- Alpex. Alpex. Oh my God. The PS. Good God, just stop it, please. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, nope, nope. It gets better. The Pumfer, the PS118E Pumfer. No. There is Paro. There is Paro. Come on, you're killing him here. The the PX77 Pun Cannon. And too bad my dog's a big dog because I'd get this for him. The PX-75 pun tank. (laughs) (laughs) The MP-07 goop. The (laughs) MP-09 dope. And finally, the PX-93 new pundum with pin funnel shirt. That is ridiculously adorable. <laughs> beyond, beyond the pundum, the store offers knitted hats based on Eb Pangelian Unit 1 and oh. the Third Angel Puccio. As well God, as na- just put it in. Knitted, ca- knitted hats and caps inspired by bees, bears, and pigs. So, if <laughs> and that's all that they should have branched out on. Mumaru actually got this. Uh, he actually got this story at a link on Anime News Network. So anybody that wants to check this out, because there's actually some pictures of there are these these poor little dogs. If the mics are picking up the thunder above us, then that should definitely oh, th- that, 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 the, that seals the, the deal right the there. Yes. God God does not approve of this garbage. <laughs> hey hey guys, it could be worse. It could be What's for that? it could be costumes for cats. Ooh, ooh, ooh! ooh. Yeah. Watch your tongue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you want a uh, helmet, bad. Char, cat's nobble. <laughs> hey, if that's you, bad juju. If you want to try strapping a helmet to a cat, it's your hands you're gonna lose, man. Not mine. <laughs> Chris, are you still with us? Uh, uh, did, did, no, I I, I want to go away now, please. <laughs> sh- shall we call nine one one for uh, some paramedic assistance for you? Because better call, let's, better call let's, a let's, suicide hotline, honestly. Actually, I have one minor little story left that right. will actually cap this, and it, it, then we can progress on with the rest of the show. Um, who of any of you guys remember the name Daisuke Enomoto? Yes, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Is he ever going to go into space? No, he's not. No. Oh, darn it. Um, they've actually kind of released why. Uh, for all those people that don't know, I guess he's a, he's a millionaire in Japan. And in 2006, he was going to be the fourth person to become the space tourist. But um, his, his trip was canceled. And they finally came out that uh, it was canceled because he had a kidney stone. Ooh. So um, kind of his... Um, Kind of his claim to fame was not only being the fourth kind of space tourist, but he wanted to go up in the space dressed as Char Aznable. Dang it, man. 
With the full so, support of Bandai. <laughs> with the full support of Bandai. So. I loved it. He wanted to build um, models up there, too. Yeah, that's right. He did, didn't he? So I, I, I'm kind of sure that he probably would have been goofy and, and tried to, you know, establish the Republic of Zeon up there, too. Oh. So. Hey, he can have, so he can have the mirror. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> that, that crashed into the ocean, so it's gone. Yeah. Exactly. Too bad he wasn't it's, on it's it. It's perfect for Zeon, see? <laughs> So there's, there's no chance that he'll ever have a shot of going back up there. Now it, that the kidney cells it doesn't. Removed. It doesn't say that. It just says that. I guess they never. This is the first time that they've talked about why he didn't go. So they've just finally released that it was just a medical condition. He had contracted some kidney stones, so they, they didn't send him up there. So this close. But uh, I, I hope that uh, I hope that um, you know lessen the blow of the mobile suit pundum story <laughs> so but i i do have to thank marmaru for that because that that's the type of stuff i want to see even though uh it may kill one of the hosts you know it, it it depressed me so much that while you just kept going on and on i already bought a bunch of um depressing clothes on hot topics website and oh <laughs> to it, counteract it's, it's, being, it's being see shipped what you've done to him, you monster so I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start. You know, writing. You know, like depressing poetry and and make my live journal all black. Did 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 you Can't get the did, black too? Did you get the complete uh, <laughs> audio library of Evanescence? Yes. Because that, that'll help you. Hey, don't I mean, forget Fallout yeah. Boy. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So. Amy Lee, son. But uh, <laughs> that's the news, guys, and we'll be back in a little bit. And hey, you're listening to Gundam and MHQ. <laughs> Damn, honey! Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Next on Gun. Damn! Obari, the um, the, the the director of the Fatal Fury movies, and um, Gravion. He's also Gravion. Yeah, but that's true. Holy, that's awesome! I didn't know he didn't know he had a hand. Yeah, in he had a cool. hand in some of the mech designs. So I guess that's one. The mecha designs are pretty inconsistent. Like one episode, you'll have the D1 looking like something out of First Gundam, and then another episode, it'll be like it came out of some sort of mecha OVA. Yeah, it's true. You'll see, like, especially in the art, you know, sometimes the, the, the D1 looks like a Gundam-type mecha, and then, you know, in other art, you see it in this, like, muscular-looking Obari style. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. more Scottish. They're, they're like some like a, and some real fun moments where like the the, the one part where uh, they're at at the pool inside the ship or whatever and then oh, they, they, they see the girls in their swimsuit and Kane's got to hop in the water to hide his uh. <laughs> Damn. Next episode, you will see the tears of time. Start talking and talk fast, you lousy bum. We've been frantically trying to reach you, dude. Where is my gun? Damn money, you bum. Well, we... I, I, I don't... They did not receive the money, you nitwit! They did not receive the money! Her life was in your hands! This is our concern, dude. No, man, nothing is f here. Nothing is f No, man. The goddamn plane has crashed into the mountain! Back to the show with more spirit than Johnny Walker. That's right, Gundam. At MAHQ. In this segment, we're finally going to get caught up on some Code Geass by reviewing um, episodes 5 through 8 in this segment of um, of, Ge of Code Geass Roundup. R for round 2. <laughs> for R2. Season 2. Whatever you want to call it. 
And in the first episode of season, two, uh, first episode that we're reviewing today in season two is Turn Five, The Night of Rounds. In this episode, um, there uh, the Black Knights are celebrating at the Chinese consulate. Um, the newly liberated Black Knights they 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 strip off their uh, they get changed out of their prison wear and they get into their um, their uniforms again. Um, Cece and Lelouch keep the identity of the Vincent pilot that assisted with the prisoner escape a secret from Callan, who inquires about it. Udebe's sacrifice from episode two is brought up when Callan informs Toto that his comrade is dead, as well as Zero's abandonment at the end of... Uh, also, another controversy start up, starts up about Zero's abandonment of the troops at the end of season one. Suzaku returns to Ashford Academy, where Lelouch plays dumb about remembering his recently altered memories. Rolo wishes to remove Suzaku from the picture as he threatens Lelouch's plans and to prevent um, blowing Lamperouge's cover. Lelouch wishes to keep him alive because it helps keep up, keeps up appearances. With Millie's insistence, she helps to reintroduce Suzu to his schoolmates again by throwing another school festival. <laughs> More hijinks ensue as Cece commemorates her love for pizza by diving into a truck full of tomatoes, assisted by Lulu's forceful push. <laughs> Callan in mascot disguise is almost uncovered by Shirley but manages to shake off her friends and attempts to unmask her Gino and Anya also visit the festival um, getting a taste for the madness of an Ashford festival for themselves Rivals gets well uh, to put it gently CB'd when <laughs> Millie ends up dancing with Gino <laughs> leaving Carmon dancing with another girl Anya meanwhile, meanwhile finds Lelouch strangely familiar having a deja vu memory of him at a younger age. I believe that's in this episode. Um, Callan informs Lelouch about Valletta being an old flame of ogies. Uh, Lelouch gives Valletta the, ver the birthday gift of blackmail, <laughs> compromising her into his web of deception. And last but not least, Suzu tests if Lelouch is still under the influence of the Emperor's Gaius by reaching out and touching him with a phone call from Nunnally. And I love that ending of that episode. The look on his face is awesome. Yeah, because it's such a he, dick thing to do. It was yeah, a real dick thing, man. So. I, I had to commend him. But, um, <laughs> hey, Neo, what were, what were your thoughts on this episode? <laughs> well, I mean, um, where to begin? Uh, it's nice to see that he's able to get the uh, Save the Black Knights. And, you know, once again, it's another one of these masterful um, deception jobs and these, these strategies that he uses in helping... Um, you know, freeing the prisoners, uh, along with using not only Rolo but using uh, the what is it the um, those the what were those the Glaston Knights to kind of help with that too. Um, now it is interesting though we get to see that um, they do go about the deception and the abandonment of uh, the Black Knights in season one. So we can definitely see that a seeds being planted there, and. Um, you know, it is nice that even though there was a pretty good reunion and everybody was happy to be back with each other, that there is uh, definitely uh, definitely some other thoughts starting to uh, creep into some of these people. Because honestly, myself, if I was uh, Toto and those guys, I'd be a little pissed at Lelouch, too. And, uh, I mean, the only thing I didn't like is the fact that they didn't really um, uh, ask him anything about it. At that point, I mean, that'd be the first thing that I would do is sit there and ask. But um, and the whole thing with Anya, too, uh, with uh, the kind of the deja vu thing. So I think uh, what is it later on episodes? We, we see where she gets kind of her her deja vu type of thing there. So we definitely see that there might be some more of uh, uh, Chuck's uh, Gius going around there. So 
But uh, other than that, a pretty solid episode. Um, nice to see everybody back. Um, but like you guys said, uh, that that ending, uh, once again, that's what's making this show a very good show is, you, you know, use, utilizing these cliffhanger endings like that and, <laughs> and doing something that's like the furthest thought of what you might seem going on. But other than that, pretty, pretty, pretty solid episode. But uh, Chris, any any thoughts on uh, turn five there? No, no thoughts at all. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, well, you know, the whole thing about the, the, the Black Knights, um, yeah, I think they also share their fair amount of um, blame for what happened at the end of Season 1 because, you know, oh, yeah. what is the point of having, you know, high-up commanders like Ogi and, and Toto and Deet Hart if they can't do things on their own without you? That is true. And Toto true. was a skilled commander who had plenty of years of experience fighting on his own. And at the end of season one, it's like as soon as Lelouch disappeared, they all became idiots. That is true. Toto especially. It's like suddenly he's like getting his ass kicked, him and his holy sores. And it's like, well, wait, what were you? You guys were so badass before, and now you're a bunch of uh, idiots. So I think the blame can be equally spread to them too because – you know, oh, yeah. Lelouch retreated from the front lines and then it all just went to hell. Like they just forgot. They forgot how to do their jobs. Exactly. It's like if, um, if, they, if they did free Japan, would Lelouch even be able to leave because these people couldn't run it? Exactly. <laughs> you know, he has bigger, Apparently not. He has bigger plans. Apparently well, not. Exactly. And it's, 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 they, it, they can't be sore at him because he could have died in battle and someone would have to take up the charge. Well, so, it, do, it does show that how kind of, I guess, how desperate these people were to grasp on anything because, yeah, I mean, they, they did just like, they just, you know, became, you know, they lost all of everything that they've been fighting for for years because of what he was saying. Because I do remember something in the last couple episodes of season one. I think it's Dehart saying that, like, Toto can't lead the troops. And I'm like, wait a second. This is the guy that, like, defeated Britannia without nightmares. Exactly. When they attack. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's just some getting lazy or just putting all of their stock into this guy. But, no, I definitely agree with you, Chris. Yeah. But for the rest of the episode, um, you know, you got some more. Some more school hijinks with another another pizza and this rather amusing chase where Lelouch's identity is almost exposed again, and we see, uh, you know, how she sucks at at athletics, and you know, <laughs> more hijinks and, and wackiness, and then of course at the end you've got you know that dick moment where, you know, Suzaku hands him the phone, and then it's Nunnally, which is like, ah, oh, what what a bastard thing to do. So, uh, Amaro. Well, really now, what can you say about an episode where you can take just a nice little chunk of it, set it to the Benny Hill music, and have it work perfectly? That is true. <laughs> you know, what I was else? thinking about... of that. Yeah, what can be said? I mean, <laughs> I know some people really get bothered and annoyed by the school antics, but another way of looking at it is really just, number one, it provides a nice little breather from all the action and all the drama. And number two, the one that's sort of more important to me is that it keeps the whole show from just being, you know, another Gundam where all they do is military, military, walk around yeah. the battleship and talk, more military. It's a nice little break. But, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you there. That's what makes the show um, different. But uh, one, one thing I actually want to th point out here about the whole the Black Knights collapsing in Season 1 is the official novelization actually goes into this just a little bit, and they actually give it a bit more justification. It makes a little more sense in context. Basically, the battle dragged on for five hours, and, you know, the Black Knights needed to do a blitzkrieg. They needed to get in and get it done fast. With an extended yeah. battle, it's Britannia's game because they can get reinforcements. Pretty and true. also, a good portion of the Japanese forces were basically just untrained 
angry people who are pissed off about the special administrative region going belly up. And they weren't trained at all. And as soon as they got into the Tokyo settlement, they peeled off from the main forces and started raiding and looting and such. And apparently Toto had to break off his assault for a while to round them up and bring everyone back. This all very goes... True, very true. The, oh, there, wasn't that much, there wasn't that much discipline instilled in the people. Not at all. You know, they didn't have, they didn't, they're, they're not military trained like they, what the Britannians have. And you, you do raise a very good point. Well, that's certainly makes more sense. Yeah. 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 Of course, it all goes the in. Anime, yeah. Yeah, the anime just makes you think like they all just became idiots. Yeah. Like, where's Zero? What are we going to do? Oh, no. Ah. With only 22 minutes, I mean, you don't have much time to tell that, to show that aspect, which is a shame. Which, uh, but, 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 um, that, that's, I, I, now you got me interested in reading the novelization, man. Well, there's been a bit of debate about the novels. If you want, we can save that for the, um, for the Taniguchi discussion later. Yeah, uh, the one thing I wanted to add to the last little bit was that Lelouch's leaving did have a huge impact because he's their greatest strategic mind, plus he has the yeah. Gavin's Druid system. And if you yeah. take, oh, take, him, take him out of the equation and the Black Knights don't have – they also lose the aerial surveillance that the Gavin provided. So take him out of the equation and he's just a massive blow to their strategic and tactical ability. And, and, he's, and it's deflating momentum-wise. I mean we see it in – sports and whatever but when you know like when the best player and the, you know they go down and no matter how good the team is you know sometimes they just can't rebound because they put so much stock into this guy even though they're all very capable of doing what they're you know doing it themselves so. like, like the bulls when jordan left there we go <laughs> like any of the yeah any yeah any sports or or just anything in general so it does make a little bit more sense on that looking at, at that aspect but any other uh comments or anything chris or armor or solbro before we move on okay okay well i guess that brings us to turn six which is called surprise tack in the pacific ocean and starts off with uh, the hang the cliffhanger that we had in episode five with uh lelouch uh getting talking on the phone and uh who's on the other thing it's nunnally but uh just as just as that starts to happen and he doesn't know how to react because he's got Suzaku over him, uh, Rolo appears and uses Gias to freeze time, uh, giving Lelouch some time to talk to Nunnally and, and tell her, you know, what's going on. And as the Gias wears off, um, Nunnally completely plays along with it. Um, and, you know, once again, Suzaku, even though he doesn't believe Lelouch, he's still kind of saying, well, you know, I guess he still has the influence of the... Um, of Charles's Gias on him to forget everything. So, and uh, we also see that you know Nunnally's coming over from the California base, and uh, she's being accompanied with uh, Guilford. And you know he's definitely saying that uh, uh, Zero's going to try something with her, you know, coming over. So and to be careful. But um, I guess um, and then we get where you know Nunnally's in the um, in the ship coming over, and she's basically wondering why if uh, Suzaku is actually lying to her and why he would be it's because uh, you know she's going to become the new uh governor viceroy of area 11 so uh we then we skip over to the chinese capital and we see uh, Kagara what is her name Kagara Kagale Ka Kagea and she's talking with um the empress there and talking about what's going on in, in Area 11. And, you know, the Empress, again, is still trying to, you know, wanting to leave the Forbidden City because she hasn't been left, able to do that. So once again, you know, they're in, they're in, uh, they're in the Chinese capital. 
a lot of uh, stuff with C2 and Lelouch with um, uh, some of the things getting the Black Knights back on track with supplies. And I guess one of the big things is C2 asks Lelouch if he's going to fight Nanali. You know, of course, he says no, and he's just saying that she's being used as a tool again. So by Britannia and by, by the Emperor to do what he wants. So um, then we, again, go to another part, and we see that kind of, what is it, the flying gazebo type thing? Oh, that, yeah. That, and we see some more stuff with Charles and V2, and uh, we see a little bit explanation of kind of their connection and what they're what they're going to be doing, and um, you know why everything's going that way. So we uh, then go back to the uh, uh, the uh, Chinese consulate, and we see that um, uh, Suzaku and Gino and Anya. Um, are looking at what happened and how the uh, Black Knights were able to escape. And um, we see that the uh, Black Knights then appear over the Pacific and they're attacking the fleet that is transporting Nunnally. So we get a couple big battles there, a lot of good stuff going on. We see that um, Callan gets an upgrade because all of a sudden the Gurren is just kind of overmatched and uh, the Black Knights uh, sub comes up and gives her the gives her kind of a flight unit for the Gurren and all of a sudden that thing just becomes uh, kind of the the god machine. Oh it does. <laughs> <laughs> Out there. And um, <laughs> you know of course um, we have all for- all the forces um, all of the forces sitting there and, and fighting with each other. And of course uh, Lelouch is gonna try to get in there and save Nunnally. And as he's getting in there, um, Suzaku comes in uh, with the Lancelot and saves her right at the last minute. And then, Suza- er, then Lelouch is blown out the out of the decompression area of the uh, of the fleet, and uh, she is saved. And but luckily, Callan catches him at the last minute. So kind of a good episode. Um, a lot of stuff going on. A lot of, uh, you know, going from, you know, I guess the previous episode was kind of lighthearted. Now we have one that's really progressing the story. Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of the players uh, making making their moments and, you know, making uh, their appearances and, and seeing what's going on. So um, other than that, I mean, um, it was kind of uh, a good conclusion to the cliffhanger that we had in, in episode five. But um, Chris, any any thoughts on this? We got a pretty nice, uh, you know, air battle episode with, um, you know, you've got the uh, the Black Knights compensating for the fact that you know they don't all have fancy air equipment yet, and um, yep. you know it's all not going well until just magically the submarine appears and Rockshot has got all <laughs> these fancy new gadgets and doodads for the Gurren, <laughs> you know, which totally turns the uh, the tide of the battle. Um, the bits with uh, the Emperor and, and V2 are pretty interesting, you know, the whole revelation yeah. of, you know, them being brothers and, you know, their their goal of uh, killing the gods and yada yada. Um, of course, at the end, it's sort of like uh, yet another sort of kind of dickish moment where just when, you know, Lelouch finally gets, you know, face-to-face with Nunnally and after, you know, not seeing her for a year, you know, who comes in but Suzaku and, and yeah. sweeps her away. Yeah. But it was sort of interesting, uh, you know, in his confrontation with her, because obviously, you know, he's playing the character of Zero, and, um, you know, she says to him, like, 
have you come to kill me like you did uh, my, my brother Clovis and my sister Yuffie? And it just freezes his minute in his tracks. Yeah, that was, I forgot Ooh. about that. So I thought that was a pretty good scene. But uh, yeah, overall, a pretty good action episode You know, with the Black Knights finally getting back into the swing of things now that they've been reformed. Yeah, it did have that kind of super robot flair, though, with uh, Rakshada just showing up. You know, oh, yeah. I knew something like this would happen, so I had the this. The professor. Yeah. <laughs> The professor, but um, all she needed is a crazy mustache. She should been she and, and a monocle. She'd have been ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's got she's got the pipe, so that's something already. Yes, that is true. And the couch, the, yeah, and the couch that she's always sprawled out on. It's always amazing that wherever she is, there's always a couch for her to sprawl out on. Yeah, it is very even amazing. even on the bridge of of like a battleship. There's a couch for her. Obviously, they don't show it, but the couch is motorized. There you oh, go. Is it? The couch it's is got, a nightmare got, frame. It's got its, own, <laughs> got its own little control stick hidden in the armrest, and when no one's looking, she shifts it around wherever she needs to go. There you go. Mystery so, solved. So, so she's going uh, to be the savior at the end of the show? She's going to have the uh, couch uh, nightmare frame? Yeah. The couch will combine with Raval's motorcycle. Expected. Nice. Oh, my God. He's calling <laughs> it. He's calling it right now. <laughs> That level of awesomeness, I don't know, can be contained. <laughs> even even Saji Crossroach would be amazed. Oh, oh he would be. Man, He'd be geez. floored. <laughs> Him and his transformable pizza truck. The only other thing that was kind of funny about it was, uh, too, I, as when I, I saw the Lancelot go out of the Avalon, it looked like the strike to me. I don't know. I don't know how many times I had to see that stock footage uh, from Seed and Seed Destiny with the stock with the uh, strike leaving the uh, hangar bay of the Archangel, and I don't know if that's like one of the uh, the state uh, if we can call the stun- sunrise staple now that like every other mecha show is going to have the 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 midair uh, launch. Yeah. With Dunbar the little with the little the little the launch and then the little dip and then the you know the the acceleration up. So. Of course. But uh, Solpro, any any thoughts comments? Um, I think it was a little bit of, I mean, I enjoyed the episode, especially the fact that it was, um, it was nice to see the, uh, the Gurren get upgraded mm-hmm. and, um, finally Rakshada and, um, then the gang come back and rejoin with the group. But, um, one of the things that irked me is, um, how they, how, um, Nunnally separated. Cause you know, at this point, Nunnally has to know that Zero and Lelouch are the same person from that, from that conversation alone on the phone to me. It kind of cemented the fact that she knows there's something up with Lelouch. Yeah, but why, why would she ask him if he was going to kill her? Though? Because I think she either thinks he has dual personalities or maybe she just, I don't know, was just trying to be wary of the whole thing just in case he wasn't mm-hmm. Lelouch. But it's, there's, there's no way that she shouldn't have known that it was her brother because of everything that went down. She had to be told something if she's now governor of... Um, if she's governor of, no, because of, when of they, Japan, how come she didn't go out her way to go back to Ashford to see when, her brother? No, but when uh, when uh, Charles and V two were talking, yeah. in that thing, he V two asked actually asked Charles why he never told her that uh, Lelouch was zero, and he said it, Charles said it wasn't important, oh. so she doesn't know. So she doesn't know. Yeah, I just so. don't think she's that naive. But you, yeah, she does <laughs> play. What, she does play the role very yeah. well. Yeah, she's. But I don't think that's too far out of the. I guess it isn't then, but I just I have it in my in my mind that she knows somehow she knows she might suspect it maybe, yeah. but I mean when when he came up and her life was in danger, yeah. she was generally frightened. So that makes sense. Then. Yeah, but well, well, by the I way, stand down. Uh, as a side <laughs> comment, uh, kind of sucked how uh, Senba, the the old guy from the Holy Swords, got uh, 
Yeah. A little side attack there from from uh, Gino out of nowhere. It's like, oh, now now you get oh, another yeah. one of the aces. Yeah. It's like he yeah. was just you know cruising along his merry way. Boom, stab, stab. A little bit of spoiler, but they're slowly becoming like the the strike team from oh. Victory because um, you know we're we're finally kind of getting to know these people more, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden as we get to know them, it's like oh. See you later. Let's get rid of the older members first. Then we'll whittle down to the younger. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true because, you know, they, they offed Urabe back in episode two, and now they killed mm -hmm. Senba, so you're just down to uh, Asahina and, and Chiba. And yeah. Urabe wasn't even on the map until, like, I didn't yeah, he's like, notice him. Did that guy even have any dialogue in season one? I'm going to have really? to rewatch he, it. He had a few lines, yeah. I mean, right. just more than, like, a few lines. It's like, I don't really recall him doing anything of any note in season one. Yeah. Uh, really, none, none of the Holy Swords did anything of note in Season 1, except maybe what? Sinbo was sort of, you know, the interim leader when Toto was in prison. Yeah. But that's pretty much it. None of the others did anything of relevance in the first season. Well, well Chiba was there to be hot, so that's, that's something important. And she, was also, she also complained about um, Zero a couple of times, about yeah. not seeing his face and stuff. I do, I do remember that, because between... between uh, yeah, her and Toto, they were the only ones I really kind of remembered. I mean, granted, yeah, because she, she was the sex kitten. But. I remember the older dude, and I remember the guy with the glasses. Is Urabe that really escaped my 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 mind's eye? And so, you know, I'm watching the beginning of season one. It's like, wait, who, what's the significance of this guy? And I, I tr I'm trying to remember if he was in season one at the time. And then when I started to rewatch season one after season two had begun. I I saw him all the time. It's like, oh my god, there he is! <laughs> but he doesn't speak. He doesn't really say Jack. All right, <laughs> but um, I guess yeah, it was it was it was it was it was um interesting to see how much uh how much how how badly the uh the the four swords are getting whittled down now. But anyway, but uh, um, well, it's pretty straightforward. Honestly, it's just pretty much an action episode. But a couple of things to note. I gotta be honest, at this point, Sea Destiny has made me sick of aerial battles over the darn ocean. <laughs> I, 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 could, I could live my life never seeing another aerial battle over the ocean in another mech anime. You threw with the midway factor? <laughs> three, cheers, three cheers for that. Not only that, but the, uh, the life-saving upgrade mm -hmm. in midair. That, oh, one yeah. didn't, that one didn't bother me so much, but yeah. Yeah, that to thing... me um, like jumped out of when, uh, when Shin was fighting the, uh, the Zamzazar. And, oh, yes. you know, he, like, was falling through the air, and he's like, am I going to die? Am I going to die? And then it's like, no! And then, boom, and then he just does it. That, like, it was the exact same thing with Colin. Well, the thing that really kept this one, this battle from grading for me was the fact that it was different. It wasn't just people flying around dogfighting. You actually had the Black Knights having to fight smart because they can't fly, and they're basically stuck on the battleships they're trying to sink. Yeah. 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 And also, just one random little thing I noticed the other day when I was rewatching. Uh, you mentioned Senba getting killed, and if you actually look, his little death speech, you can see that the Tristan's um, MVS blade actually cut through his body. Oh, it's yeah. pretty gruesome. Ooh. Wow. So he got it's a little, uh, you, can, you can see part of it. It's just, it's this huge red thing that takes up part of the screen as he gets his final little death comment. Oh, so he got nickel. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, he didn't really get Nickode because Nickode, we would have seen that we would have seen him get killed with, with in the, the next four episodes. Seen it five times. Four episodes? <laughs> Only four? My piano. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things, as you're gonna die, you're gonna yell for your piano. But uh, it's like it's like when it's like when Homeboy died in um, Gundam. What's his name? Makuve? Yeah. My crystal like, boss. My, my crystal boss. 
It's very important. And very ambiguous. I hope Cassilia got it in the mail. <laughs> I guess the last thing I'll say on uh, turn six is um, Armour brought up a good point when you were talking about the uh, the, the Black Knights fighting uh, in the ocean and not really having flight capabilities. I did kind of enjoy how they were using the uh, what is it the slash harkins yeah. to really um you know really see how you could use them in the mer- you know compensating for their lack of flight capability so that was that was kind of nice but i'm kind of with him too because if i don't see a battle over ocean again it won't be too soon <laughs> but uh, i guess that'll give us that now to uh, turn seven and uh, who's got that one be me and uh, turn seven is the discarded mask so uh, basically, you've got uh, great little uh, scene chewing with uh, Charles talking about the Ten Commandments, and he's basically saying that things like justice and morals are, uh, you know, lies used by the the weak because they're they're too weak to defend themselves. And it's like, okay, that's that's an interesting viewpoint. I don't recall anyone ever saying that the Ten Commandments are used by the 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 weak and the cowardly. I thought they were supposed to protect the weak and the cowardly. Yeah, it's like, man, talk about taking social Darwinism to the extreme. Well, I don't yes. know. What about Ted Turner? Oh. <laughs> hey, I'm allowed to make cracks. I'm from Georgia. Oh, heck yes. Hey, he just... He just whatever. Uh, <laughs> he, he colorized the movies of the week. <laughs> that is true. Um, anyway, we sort of have a continuation of... Uh, you know, sort of a cliffhanger episode six because it ended with, uh, you know, the ship crashing, uh, Suzaku flying with Nunnally and Lelouch just being tossed through the air. But uh, yeah. luckily, Colin swoops in and catches him. So, you know, you've got uh, in Area 11, you've got Nunnally setting settling in as the, uh, the new Viceroy and, you know, basically introducing herself. And at the same time, uh, you see Lelouch, he's on a major depression trip because, you know, he's sort of hit with the realization that everything he's been fighting for has been invalidated because now Nunnally is the, you know, the new Viceroy and then technically therefore his enemy. So sort of has him calling into question everything he's been doing. So you see him just sort of like riding around on a train all depressed using GSD to get everybody away from him. And, um, you know, this culminates in him going to a uh, construction site in the ghetto and Colin finding him there, and he's about to inject himself with Refrain, which, yeah, as everyone yeah. recalls, is uh, the drug that allows you to relive the past and that her, her, mo- her own mother was addicted to, her biological mother. Very true. And, you know, she kind of, you know, gets out of it, and there's some, some you know, some sexual tension between the, uh, the two of them. And um, then you've got Rolo appearing, and he's basically enticing Lelouch, like, like if you stop being zero, then you can just be a peaceful student and live with me, your little brother, and blah, 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 blah. Oh, boy. Um, at the same time, you've got uh, the Black Knights. They have their submarine that's disguised inside of a tanker. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Suzaku, who's now the, uh, the Coast Guard inspector, apparently, uh, <laughs> is inspecting and thinks that they're up to something. So, you know, he's attacking them, and then... Um, you know, they're wondering where the hell Zero is, but then Lelouch appears and he's like, you know, do this and that and this and that and then you'll be okay. So they end up, uh, you know, shooting up an underwater methane hydrate tank, which causes all these bubbles to rise up and capsize the Britannian ship. So basically he just did a 
water version of his favorite little, uh, you know, make the ground collapse strategy. <laughs> and then yeah, just works. as Suzaku was basically ready to, like, swoop in and, and get Lelouch, he announces that he's going to accept Nunnally's uh, invitation uh, to rejoin the special administrative zone. Yeah. Because you know, she, she made some waves by uh, announcing that she wanted to create that again, and obviously that was not part of the plans of what, you know, the Britannians wanted to do, and she just sort of shoved that in on her own. Well, partly, too, is probably to uh, clear the name of uh, Euphemia. That, too, as well. Yeah, because, what, in R2, she's basically known as the instigator of the Black Reef Valiant. Like, yeah, she's no, they, she's, pr- isn't her nickname no, the, uh, the Massacre the Princess? Massacre Princess, yeah. yes, sir. And she's been pretty much kind of, I don't know, necessarily disowned, but kind of, you know, kept at arm's length with the royal family now, publicly, that is. Yeah, you publicly, know. I mean, she's pretty much maligned as, like, you know, she did this yeah. on her own and she set off this massacre. Yeah. So, guys, so, uh, you have any, uh, any thoughts on the episode? Uh, actually, just real quick, one thing I wanted to say about the previous episode, but I forgot because we got caught up in all the discussion, is you know, we're talking about whether Nunnally knows that Lelouch is zero or not. And, of yeah. course, at the end of the episode, we have the bit where the decompression sucks him out of the out of the airship, and as he's flying away, he screams out her name, and she reacts yeah. to it. So yeah. if she didn't know then, I think they definitely set it up for her to know now. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I would I kind of agree with that. But, yeah, I, I think at the point when he was there, I don't think think she knew because she she is a young girl so and we can see she's very impressionable <laughs> well the question is just how naive she is and how savvy she is and she didn't she call for suzaku as soon as it started decompressing too she screamed for suzaku i believe yeah which so is, which yeah which you know helped in developing this episode too with yeah. uh, lelouch going through that depression so yeah it pretty much damn near broke lelouch's heart man yeah i mean it was a good episode in the aspect of you know once again we get to see at, it's the it's the overall theme of this is you have a power that can control the world control people but yet you necessarily can't control the things around you at times or the things that are most important and it's it's just setting up the thing of every woman that's important to him something's happening to Lelouch uh, you know his mother and then he loses his you know now he's lost his sister uh, to Britannia, and you know, it, it, it was kind of nice to see the him finally kind of, you know, getting the terms of with his feelings for Callan too, and, and seeing that she had feelings for him too, because even though he kind of forced himself upon her, it didn't. She she still kind of liked it, you know. She but it just wasn't the way that she was thinking of it, and you know, using the refrain again, you know, and and having her because of what she went through with her mother. Yeah. was another uh, another good way of um, kind of tying everything together there. But um, it, it is, you know, we're, we're starting also to see kind of the uh, the obsession that Suzaku now has with Zero and his obsession that he thinks that Lelouch has remembered, regained his memories and is Zero. So, I mean, it's it's kind of deconstructing him too. So, but other than that, pretty solid episode. So... Yeah, I forgot to mention this comment before I hand it off, but um, I think it was good in this episode to show the, uh, you know, the burden that all of this is is putting on Lelouch and that he's starting yeah. to buckle under the pressure because, you know, up to now, he's always played everything, you know, calm and cool. You know, I'm, I'm clearing all the conditions for victory, but you yeah. know, now he's put in a condition, in a, in a situation where there's, there is no, there is no way to win, you know, because 
what he wants to accomplish is in direct contrast to what's going on in the situation now. So you see him, you know, react in a very human way to a hopeless situation and basically, you know, fall into depression and fall to the point of, you know, he's about to depend on drugs to help him out. Oh, yeah. And a masterful play by uh, Charles by putting <laughs> her in as Viceroy. Yeah. I mean, you, you just couldn't play it any better. Actually, that's the thing, remember? She said so in the last episode that she, make, she asked, asked to be made the Viceroy herself. And she said, you know, I'm not being used as a tool. This is what I want. Yeah. Which is part of why Lelouch goes through his little shock here, because he's wondering if he's just fo- forcing his own desires on Nunnally. Yeah. And, too, I think he kind of questions to see maybe if she got her memories changed, too, by uh, the Emperor. So, Solbro? Well, I, 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 like, I like this episode a lot because it's, it's a nice little introspective on Lelouch, and it shows him as a real vulnerable guy. And, you know, he's almost at the point where he wants to quit this whole quest to um, to get his revenge because his sister's safe. And he's kind of getting what he wanted because his sister is, you know, she's not she she's not in harm's way anymore. Kind of, you know, she's um, she's she's running Japan. She's being taken care of. And as long as he doesn't slip out of line, she'll always be taken care of. But at the same time, there's a lot more people depending on him now. And when he comes to that realization that, you know, it's not just about his sister anymore. It showed a lot of character development with him, and I, I like that a lot. That he's now not just a one-trick pony when it comes to I got to change the world for my sister. No, I got to change the world for everybody, everybody who's downtrodden, everybody who's been affected by my father. I really got to I've got to do this for not just them, but main, mainly for my sister, but for them too. And I like how Callan played a real integrate role and how they brought um, Refrain back into it because yeah. you know Refrain is a bad word in her household, and she's not about to let anybody under her <laughs> anybody under her watch fall into that crap and um especially after her mother pretty much was was at the you know, at the bottom of the barrel using that crap and um i liked her involvement in the episode a, a lot but um it, it's one of my favorite episodes of the series because I, I like it when they take time to actually concentrate on a character and develop them especially through despair and that's just me but um, anybody else have any other thoughts or uh, words to say? I thought it was a pretty straightforward episode, honestly. It's just, yeah. it, it's like you said. It's Part of the thing about Lelouch is he's got, like C2 says in this episode, he's holding out the hopes of all the area colonies. So yeah. one guy going through a lot of stress. And in this episode, we see that it really gets to him. Oh, I was just going to, I was, uh, sorry, I was just going to say that I, th- I think he finally realized it's not a game anymore. I think up until that point, he thought it was a game. He's always kind of thought of it as a chess game, and, and now, like you said, he's got the hopes of all the colonies. I don't know if he ever really thought it was a game, because as early as the very second episode of the show, he thinks to himself, this isn't a game. There are real lives at stake here. Yeah, when he got inducted, yeah. uh, he pretty much got baptized by fire <laughs> when he was controlling the troops in the second episode of the show. Let me see, what was I going to say? There, there was the nice little scene where Nanali and Suzaku go to the memorial for the previous Administrative Zone's massacre. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Nanali carves the little can- candle that has Yuffie's name written on it. And when Suzaku goes to put it on the little reflecting pond, he sees there's one, another one for Euphemia there. So obviously yeah. it was done by Lelouch. And it's a nice little yeah. sign that he hasn't just forgotten about Yuffie or anyone else that he's had to hurt along the way. That is true. I forgot about that. That's right. But, hmm. Any, any there, other thoughts of turn seven? Or? There was something else, but it just slipped my mind. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Sure. It'll come back to you when yeah. we're talking about eight. 
Pro- probably. <laughs> no one might like it. But, uh, well, of course, we also get yet another fabulous zero pose at the end of this one. <laughs> it's all so they can keep making more statues. Oh, boy. oh yeah. And those statues look awesome. I gotta get one, but uh, that's that's well. If anything, um, Amaro, would you like to uh, would you like to uh, finish us off here? On finish us off with episode eight. Well, now we're gonna move on then to turn eight, which is the mil- the miracle of a million. This one picks up right off where the previous episode left and has Rolo setting zero down on the submarine. Suzaku's still a bit upset that he's basically going to go along with Nanali's proposal, and he tries to push a little bit and say that you know this isn't going to absolve you of what you've done. But Gino says that, you know, we got to go along with it. So they, black, they back off. And then the Black Knights, they're discussing the whole thing, and they're starting to worry that Zero's going to sell them out. And Toto and Ogi sort of discuss briefly what they do if that turns out to be the case. But then they show a, bit of, a few scenes around Area 11, the fact that the 11s are just naturally distrusting Nanali and the Special Administrative Zone because they think it's going to turn out to be, you know, Massacre Princess 2, Revenge of the Massacre Princess. <laughs> but, and we get the implication that it was just something she pulled completely off the cuff, that it wasn't at all planned. Oh, yeah. Let me see. Hmm. Uh, from there, we have uh, the, the, the student council's working on a garden on the rooftop, as per Millie's plans. And when they're talking about the special administrative region, the topic of Callan comes up. And it really just shows that they still think about her and they still care about her because Shirley asks Suzaku if there's any way they can get her a pardon. And Lelouch sort of surprises everyone by saying he was on the phone with the new Viceroy. But then we we cut to the military base and there's a brief little bit where Suzaku starts musing on Lelouch and why he's doing what he's doing. And we also get shown that he's fully conscious of the live geas that was placed on him back in the first season because he reacts to uh, an 11 soldier trying to knife him, but afterwards he shows that he knows it's on him and he wants to know why it was done. And as we continue on, Rolo seems to be pretty much obsessing over Lelouch's promise and getting a bit fixated on this whole, you know, you said you'd hand C2 over to me, come on! And Lelouch basically has to convince him that things are still, things are still going as they are. And then we jump over to Dallas, Texas, where we actually get reintroduced to Nina, as if everyone wanted that to happen. <laughs> but basically we learn that she's working for Schneisel, trying to develop, take the Sakuradite slash fission bomb that she made at the end of the first season and make it work. And despite the fact that She's just repeatedly produced nothing but failed prototypes. He's given her all this leeway, and she sa- she wants to thank him for it, and Schneisel says it's because she's acting on Yuffie's behalf. We get, a little, we get a little scene where Suzaku and Anya are hanging out and talking, and one of the Glaston Knights comes up and asks Suzaku to sign the orders that will allow them to punish the Eleven who tried to kill him. He hesitates, obviously, but Anya signs it, and then she asks him if he's a masochist, because... All the actions he's taken up to this point seem to imply that he doesn't mind getting hurt. Mm. And let's see. Next up, we have this scene where Zero finally gets to talk to the Britannians about the plans he has for the Special Administrative Region. And he's a little surprised to learn that not only is not involved in the discussion, but it's the Knights of the Round we've been introduced to so far with Lloyd, Cecile, and Nunnally's assistant, Miss Romeyer. And 
during the Schneisel's discussion. there too, I believe, right? Uh, who? Isn't Schneisel there too? Uh, no, Schneisel wasn't remember. present there. Yeah, I don't think he is. He doesn't. They don't meet until a few more episodes. But in this one, there's actually an interesting and important point where Lloyd asks Zero if he's the same person or if he's just someone who's taken out the mantle. And, oh, yeah. Z- and Zero basically gets them to concede the fact that Zero is not a person but an idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's observed by the Britannians that what Zero's doing is basically a self-preservation measure, that he wants to get exiled in return for bringing a million people to the Special Zone. And they're like, so you realize that if you tell the Black Knights about this, they're, they're going to lynch you. And he says, that's why I'm doing this in private. I'm oh, sorry, this is the episode where we get the scene at the mausoleum. I'm sorry, I misplaced that. No problem. But uh, yeah, that, that's where we get the candle bit, where we learn that yeah. Lelouch is still thinking about Euphemia. Uh, and then the day of the special, the day of the special administrative zone opening, Nunnally's making her speech, and we're getting we're getting the information from Miss Romeyer about how everyone who joins the zone is going to have their their criminal offenses lowered a level or two. And then when they're talk where they're trying to talk and continue going on, Zero cuts into the video feed. Suzaku demands that he reveal who he is. And then Lelouch pulls an interesting little speech that he had earlier, basically asking what makes a race. Is it just a language or a common bloodline? And Suzaku responds that it's a it's the heart. Of course, this gives Zero exactly the ammunition he needs, because at this point the million people in the crowd press little switches and the luggage they brought with them emits smoke. And when it clears, every single one of them is in a Zero costume. And the Britannians are just, their jaws are on the floor. And, of course, this is how Lulus turns it to his advantage by saying, you don't know who Zero really is, so if Zero's an idea, then that means all these people have to be exiled too. They're Zero, aren't they? And they actually have this brief little struggle the Britannians do between, do they accept this and let a million people leave the workforce, or do they try to stop the stop this apparent rebellion and risk starting another massacre? Mm-hmm. In the end, Lelouch manages to play off of Suzaku's, his desire for peace, and basically gets him to prevent Romeyer from starting it, starting the whole thing herself. Ooh. And there's a little bit where Ogi in the Zero costume has a brief run-in with Valletta, but he denies it. And of course, just, just for the humorous note, throughout this entire scene... It's blatantly obvious who's in the Zero costume. You've got Kaguya, you've got Tamaki, you've got Rakshata with her pipe. But they all just call each other Zero. It's like, hey, Zeros, let's go! Just just for a good bit of humor there. <laughs> but then when they're wondering how they're going to get away, all of a sudden a gigantic iceberg ship comes up, which is apparently something that Li Shinku had ordered for China, but he loaned to Lelouch as part of their deal. And this is the Zeros reporting. We get a little scene where... Um, Sayoko's on the ship, and Lelouch is there in the Zero costume, and he takes off his mask for her. And she sees it and is obviously happy. And the, the Japanese are on the ship sailing away. Suzaku basically looks on and thinks to himself that he wants Lelouch to promise to take care of all the people while he, le- while he handles the ones who stay behind. And as Lelouch sails off, he thinks to himself that Nanali's in good hands. And that pretty much wraps the episode. But it, it was an interesting little bit here. We get to see Lelouch was struggling. Previ- in the previous episode, he struggled with the burden of being Zero and what it all entailed. And in this one, he's right back in the saddle, because 
Mm-hmm. He's got this plan for getting Britannia to admit that Zero is not an individual person, but rather a concept that if you have this person who's lost everything, then they are Zero. Yeah. The person who has lost everything and is willing to strike back to try to reclaim it. And in the act of doing so, they give him the perfect opening he needs to get himself an army of a million people, his own little nation. Yeah. You definitely get to see, too, that... Um I know that we were kind of questioning in the previous episodes about with uh, not only being the Viceroy that we can kind of see that, yeah, she is the Viceroy, but it seems like a lot of the day-to-day and and some of the more difficult matters are being taken care of by, you know, Guilford and um, uh, Miss Romeyer and, you know, some of the other members of, of her delegation where she's kind of, she's not necessarily the Viceroy just in name, but she's very limited, and, and, you know, we, we'll get to see that kind of play on a li- uh, further on in, in future episodes. But I thought that was kind of an interesting thing, too. And, you know, it was kind of an interesting way of um, regaining his army and, um, you know, doing kind of a thing of, uh, I know, Suzaku, you'll take care of the people that are here and, and I'll do what I can with the people that I take. But um, it's just, it, the you know, the whole... The whole thing of, um, you know, involving now the Chinese Federation, we can see that it's definitely becoming more of a global thing than what we had before with uh, just kind of an uprising within Area 11. So, Well, also something important that comes up in this episode is you mentioned earlier that we have the, we have the Black Knights starting to show some mistrust for Zero based off of, excuse me, what happened one year ago. Yes. And again, now... Their immediate response when Zero says, we're going to go along with the special administrative region is to start wondering, is he going to betray us? We need to start planning. But it all fell in place at the end. I mean, I, I guess um, there was a plan within a plan that was kind of, you know, left out of the eyes of the viewer. But um, I, 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 in a sense, um, not only did Lelouch win back the, um, the trust of the Japanese, to at least to an extent, by pulling off this plan, but also, you know, it, it it just it worked out on so many levels, and I, I think that um, I think I I just I love that scene where all the um where everybody is dressed up as as zero, and how he just flips the he just flips the whole concept of zero on um on 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 Suzaku yet again yeah. taking advantage of him, but um but in a definitely good way. I mean Suzaku couldn't he couldn't really hate on Lelouch for doing what he did or, or zero because he doesn't hundred percent know who he is, but he he has his you know his assumptions. But um, I just I, I I love that scene overall. When um when seeing the preview for that episode, didn't even show you that everybody dresses up as Lelouch, but R Zero. But is it was just funny to actually see the the title being taken taken seriously, <laughs> being yeah. literally taken. It's like wow, that's cool. But what I want to know is just really quick. How I want to know how many of those million people just got an incredible thrill out of being dressed as Zero, because <laughs> offhand you could probably guess that um. Kaguya probably loved it. Tamaki, who's, you know, BFF forever, yeah. he probably loved it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it, it was just hilarious seeing everyone just getting so into being Zero and talking. Um, to- I, 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 now that you bring up Tamaki, um, does he speak with an Osaka dialect, just out of curiosity? 
I can't 100% pick that up when I watch anime, but he comes up at his attitude comes up as very Osaka or, or just very, uh, what's the word? I don't know, just very gangsterish or, uh, bu- yeah, yeah, a little rough around the edges. He's awesome, but uh, in any yeah. other anime, he could be like you know, uh, like a high school thug or a yakuza. So yeah, every time I see him, I think of Onizuka. Every time, great teacher Onizuka. Every time, that same kind of demeanor, like he's um. Maybe like he's he was that punk. before. <laughs> uh, maybe he was that before the Britannians attacked. Hey, he you never been. know. That'd have been awesome. That'd great been awesome. teacher Tamaki. He could have been teaching at the same school Ogi was. Teaching I don't know. At the he's same he's school Ogi was. But he's too <laughs> stupid. He's too stupid to be teaching anything. So other oh, yeah. than like how to live on the streets. Maybe he was a gym. Maybe he was a gym teacher, and the school of hard knocks. Maybe, <laughs> and I'm surprised that no one has mentioned the absolute best part of episode eight. Oh, go ahead, Cecile's dress. Oh, I knew. Oh, yeah. I, I knew that was what you were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh man, my that, god, that thing oh, is just know, so. It's just so indecent that it's delicious. You know, I gotta say, just right there, it's obvious there in Japan because I'm seeing a couple of mountains. Yeah. <laughs> And I, 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 doesn't one of, I forget who it is, but doesn't somebody actually comment on her dress being made? Yeah, a little, it was Romeo. Too inappropriate, the, the, yeah, a little too inappropriate the, the, for the, strict, the, uh, the, like, marm-looking, uh, you know, <laughs> Romeo who's like, what are you doing with that outfit? It's like, that's, that's a good question, but not in the same way I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Just as a random little aside, it's been brought to my attention that apparently Miss Romeyer is meant to be an homage to a character from the Sunrise adaptation of Heidi of the Alps. Heidi. A character yeah, that... named Miss Rottenmeyer. And really, how much more blatant can you get than that? Yeah. <laughs> it would make sense. I read that, too. Yeah, well, we... she, she, does, she does remind me of like that strict... Strict um, governess. Yeah, yeah strict governess, Eastern European governess or something like that. You must act this way. You must... <laughs> You know, you must not embarrass yourself. But yeah, definitely, uh, it, it 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 was kind of an interesting way of 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 like you said, uh, tying the title to what's going on in the episode. <laughs> the episode, quite literally, <laughs> the way it would play out is like, wow, literally a million zeros. All right, <laughs> <laughs> the million zero march. <laughs> but uh. Nah, it, it was actually only about 100,000 or so. There was just some accounting errors, but Zero doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Is any other any other uh, comments on this episode? No, not really. Solbro? I'm good. All right. Well, I guess that... little thing just I just popped up okay. in my head is we actually get a statement from Millie. Is when they're watching this and she sees the million Zero, she actually admits that Zero has gone and made himself a symbol. And it really shows Millie's actually really, really smart. It's just she never does she anything. Acts silly. Yeah. yeah. Do you think you think she, you think she might have an idea that he is actually zero, knowing his lineage? I think she does. This this is actually yeah. another little thing that ties into the novels. Just real quick is in the final novel for the first season, when Lelouch has captured the student council, he's thinking about how you know. Millie is just, he thinks to himself that Millie is really intelligent and really charismatic, and if she had been born Japanese, he would have tried to recruit her in a heart, because she's expressed dissatisfaction with the way Britannia runs things, and quite obviously she's not a racist. No, not at all. Basically, I think, she could have been a real major player in all this, but simply the fact that she's just the student council president means she's not gonna. Yeah, and she she deep down likes what Zero's doing, because, you know, the background of her family, um, you know, getting kind of, you know, losing their nobility through Britannia. I'm sure she's she wouldn't mind seeing them kind of go away. 
<laughs> in a lot of ways. So I think she might have figured it out in in the first season, but then you have to keep in mind, you know, everybody getting their memories re- in the in the school getting their memories yeah. rewritten. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. So you know, if she if she had known previously, then you know that went out the window. Yeah. She, She's smart. She knows the real Lelouch, yeah. so I think yeah. it's about ninety-nine percent certainty she knows he's zero. That, and he's always been a, he's always been good at doing little things that just plants a little bit of seed of doubt, and it, it's always been kind of the interesting thing throughout both seasons. Is that when you kind of when people kind of feel like they're thinking that he's zero, he does something or he says something that says, well, maybe he isn't. I don't know, you know, so. And if someone as dense as Suzaku could pretty much come to the conclusion himself until he was told outright, yeah. me too, then I'm sure someone smart like Millie could have figured that out on her own. Yeah. Especially oh, since oh. she's one of the few that knew who Lelouch really was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just one, one little thing real quick I forgot to mention earlier that y'all brought up. Um, Euphemia, Euphemia actually, she gave up her right to the throne as we learned in the first season. But they never really elaborated on it. We seem we seem to be given the hint that she gave up her right to the throne so she could run the special administrative zone. But either the the writers or the side materials basically say that she gave up her she gave it up in order to give Zero a full pardon, knowing that she was knowing that he was Lelouch. She gave up her royal title in order to give him a pardon so he could help her run the administrative zone. Okay. Okay. That's wow. That that, that that apparently apparently members of the royal family can just give up their claim to the throne in return for some sort of major favor or exchange, and she gave hers up to yeah. pardon. Yeah, that. I mean, that that's happened in in real life nobility too. So yeah. But, but yeah. Well, but that but that that makes a lot of sense, and I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> All right. Well, um, again, uh, this is this has been episodes of reviews of episodes five through eight of Code Geass R two, and we'll be back with more reviews in just a moment on Gundam at MAHQ. You're driving along. You're driving along, and all of a sudden the kids are yelling from the back seat. I gotta go to the bathroom, Daddy. Not now. Gun. Damn it. Welcome back, everybody. This is uh, Neo, and um, this is the sixth installment of our ongoing series of Gundam Roundup. And we're going to be doing the second motion picture uh, with uh, that's that was produced um, in production order here, and that would be Mobile Suit Gundam F91. And this was uh, another uh, motion picture that was done by um, Tomino. And some of the backstory on this, it was originally supposed to be about a 52-episode show. And I guess they were able to do about 13 episodes with the story. And for whatever reason, um, which I guess is here nor there, different rumors or whatever, but uh, it ended up becoming a motion picture. And the two, two-and-a-half-hour movie of F91 is kind of bits and pieces of the story of those first 13 episodes. So um, it starts about 30 years after the second Neo-Zeon War, Shars Counterattack, and there's been some peace, and we're pretty much introduced to a colony called the Frontier Colony, Frontier 4 Colony, um, and we're introduced to a couple characters, uh, one Seabook, Arno, and, and then a red-headed girl named Cecily Fairchild. And it, the, the day that we're introduced to him, there's kind of a beauty pageant. And, of course, Cecily is the, you know, the, the hottest girl on Frontier 4. So, you know, she's getting entered into the, entered into the, um, 
contest and but at the same time uh, while this is happening we see some mobile suits that are sneaking into the colony never seen that before in a Gundam and uh, going in there and next thing you know there is a uh, an attack in the colony uh, against the Federation forces and it is against a group called Cos uh, Cosmo Bab Babylon and they have, uh, or the crossbow—they're actually the crossbone. The crossbone vanguard is actually the military um, end of this, and they are basically having their way with the Federation forces because their mobile suits are a lot smaller, a lot more compact, a lot more maneuverable, and but still as powerful as the older ones. <laughs> and uh, we're introduced—you um, know—some things happen. There's kind of a great escape out of the colony. That's. Um, you know, going to be crashing down. Um, Cecily is kidnapped by one of the pilots from uh, the Crossbone Vanguard, and we're you're introduced to the Masked Man, Corzara, uh, Corzo, 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 who wears instead of just a mask, he wears an iron mask, and he's actually nicknamed Iron Mask, um, and he is kind of the head of this family of nobility who has the idea of Cosmo Babylon, and they are. In short, they're just a bunch, a group of elitists who think that only the people of their nobility and the people that they choose can do, you know, what's best for humanity. So, um, got a few things in here. Uh, Seabrook with a couple of his other friends that, he, you know, from the Frontier Four colony, they meet up with a Federation training ship. And uh, lo and behold, Seabrook's mom that uh, was kind of absent for, you know, a good part of his life. Uh, we get introduced to her that on this um, on this training vessel there is an experimental Gundam called the F91, and as they're watching one of the instructional videos, uh, Seabrook sees his mom, who helped uh, create this F91. So, kind of a long story short, he is somehow chosen to pilot this. Um, we see that the Crossbone Vanguard um, is is going on with their their plan of taking over the colonies, and a lot of the Federation f officials are kind of washing their hands of it. So, uh, Crossbone Vanguard is able to do what they want. So, the people on these uh, the training vessel, it's called the Space Ark, uh, Seabrook, and a lot of his friends join in the fight to repel the Cosmo Crossbone Vanguard forces. Um, we have some defections. From Crossbow and Vanguard, we have some killing. We have some, um, you know, pretty good mobile suit battles. Um, and we see that Cecily, you know, like we said earlier, she is um, she is the long-lost daughter of nobility within the Crossbow and Vanguard, with uh, Iron Mask being her father. Uh, she becomes a pilot. Um, she comes back and confronts Seabrook. Seabook and she defects over and they basically uh, defeat her father Iron Mask at the end in a large kind of octopus bit mobile armor thingy majiggy so um, that's kind of a quick synopsis of the movie I didn't want to go too much into the plot points because uh, a lot of people have different opinions and it, it, it does. Sh one of the problems with the movie is that you can kind of see that there are a lot of ideas 
um, that are and much more ideas than what can be shown in a two, two and a half hour motion picture. So I'm going to put it off to some of our guys here on the panel, uh, Solbro, um, Chris, and our guest today, Armro and T1 from the boards, and whichever one of you guys want to jump in, go ahead. Well, um, <laughs> I, I, I do agree with you there when, when, when you say it's very, very... Uh, it's it's the cliff notes of what it, of probably would have been a really great story. I mean, when I'm watching it, I, I feel real lost, and I feel like I want to read the novel based on this so I can actually get the whole story and then enjoy the anime because, quite honestly, it was all over the place. I mean, they really didn't explain his mom, his importance. I mean, they mentioned her and the fact that she played a role in all of that, but I don't know. I just... I'm watching this movie and I'm getting so angry because I feel so out of the loop as I watch it. You know, I enjoyed it for it what it was. Anger. How was it? Inciting anger. It didn't, oh, I know. It, I was, I was, it didn't incite any anger like, with me. I was like, it, it, <laughs> I was a little I was somewhat a little miffed that I was I was out of the loop. I mean, I had to I had to hit, hit the old interwebs afterwards to really get caught up on the, you know, all the background story and the importance of certain characters. It just, for the most part, I, I liked F91 just... I just haven't had the urge to really go back and watch it since I first watched it because I'm, I watch it and I just don't have a grasp of everything that's happening and, you know, what happened over time. And, you know, I, I didn't even really, as much as C-Book was cool, I just don't think of him when I think of Gundam Pilots. I just think he was just there at the right place at the right time. And I, every time I think of F91, I always think of that poor little lady who got her neck snapped at the beginning because of a casing. <laughs> <laughs> That's my standout. Oh, thought. from the gun but cannon. That and the most gruesome weapon I've ever seen in a Gundam show. Oh, the bugs. Oh my god, dude, that is the worst thing. A ball with a freaking buzzer on it, dude. <laughs> Specifically designed to just slice people up. People in yeah. half. It's like this freaking iron mask. Oh, and of course, let me bring up the assassination scene because you know that we got to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> when 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 that dumbass assassin is trying to shoot Iron Mask, and now keep in mind his his nickname is Iron Mask, and, and he wears to, an Iron Mask. He's trying to snipe him in his forehead. What? <laughs> that don't that make any sense. Why not try to shoot him in the chest? Why not try to shoot him anywhere in his vital organs? Oh no, I'm going to try to take him out by shooting him in the most reinforced spot on his whole body. It, I, maybe I, he I, was I, banking on shoddy construction. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, Inferior maybe Chinese parts were used to make the Iron Mask. <laughs> maybe he's trying to get it into one of those little vents or, or, or one of those little openings because he think he thought he was that awesome. They should, they should have, they should have hired Goku Thirteen. Oh yeah, yeah. it'd have been done. <laughs> yeah, he get Iron Mask and the parrot. <laughs> that uh, credits would have rolled. I, I think it's funny that you bring up that scene because that almost kind of epitomizes the 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 movie to an extent. Of just kind of WTF, <laughs> the the feeling that you have throughout this show. But Chris or, or Armo, jump on in. Well, for me, to be totally honest, the first time I saw F91 was God, like two, maybe three years ago at a convention. And I, I just really haven't had the desire to go back and see it again, like uh, we were saying. It, it was all right. It was a Gundam series, or Gundam show, rather, but... It it was just so compressed that you really couldn't get a good grasp of anything. It went by too quickly. There were just too many gaps. And I think on top of that, there were there were just some elements that were cliche and grating. But I, I know there's usually cliches in everything, but 
some of the some of the ones in F ninety one were really bad. Like the idea that the F ninety one the biocomputer's controls control structure is based off of the cat's cradle that the mother did when they were kids. That's just yeah. Come on, that's like that's cheap summer blockbuster crap. That really annoyed me. I just couldn't stand that one little twist. That really got to me. But I agree that I have—I really couldn't get a grasp of any of the characters. I still like Seabook and Sicily, but honestly, when I think of them, I tend to default to Crossbone Gundam version because oh, yeah. they were a lot better defined. They were a lot more interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was the um, some of the other things, like, um, what was it? Uh, them and the only other person you could kind of identify with because they were... You know, they had enough screen time. Was uh, Burgett the, uh, the the what was that? He was the Jigen pilot. But mm-hmm. compared to some of the other people, like what the uh, what was it? What was the name of that uh, girl? Anna Marie, the, um, the, one the who girl that the defected. defected. Yeah, it's like one one minute she's def- she's fighting against them. Next minute she's fighting with them. Yeah. And then the you know thirty seconds later she's getting killed. Even worse, the fact they seem to imply the only reason she defected was because she got jealous of the fact that Zabine was, show, was showing Sicily attention. Yeah. yeah Basically, so. she was mad because she wasn't getting laid. Oh. <laughs> for shame. Honestly, I, I didn't really get anything out of Bearcat, to be honest. I thought it was basically just Seabook, Sicily, and Zabine. Well, I mean, he's the only one you could kind of, you know, um, not necessarily relate to, but he was there for a better portion than you know, than just Seabook and Sicily. Yeah. Who was the sub character that um that looked like she was fresh out of Gem and the Holograms? I forget. Um, the, the girl with the punk hairdo. Thank Dorothy, you. Yeah. I, I, I did like her character a lot. I, I'm sorry she didn't get much screen time, but um. <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I was all. <laughs> hey, uh, Sobro. What about uh, your your man Arthur? Oh, <laughs> my man Arthur, man, the brother. <laughs> yeah, the, the token <laughs> black guy. Well, finally, a Gundam series with a token black guy in it, man. It's as well. lasted what forty seconds. That's what I'm saying. It did what forty seconds. That's what I'm lasted saying. Lasted forty that seconds and got blown by a freaking bazooka into the wall and yeah. bonked hey, his he, head. He set the pace. He was just there. To, <laughs> he was just there to say things like "damn" and "that is whack." Whack, yeah. especially his death. <laughs> <laughs> he went out like a punk, and I'm so sorry for him, man. He had promise. He but, had promise. But Chris, that, any what, uh, <laughs> any any thoughts on? Uh, F91 there, likes, dislikes. Well, definitely uh, it feels like a compilation movie for a series that never existed. Yeah. So it's like you kind of watch and it's like, I kind of feel like watching the series is based off, oh, wait, there isn't one. (laughs) Uh, On the plus side, definitely I think F91 is probably the best animated Gundam anything ever, you know, up until 00, you know, being made for high definition. But, yeah. You know, I can't say that definitely because I haven't seen Double O in high definition yet. But um, very, very uh, nice animation on uh, F91. Really great mobile suit designs. I love everything from the F91 to all of the crazy-looking um, crossbow vanguard designs to the so Grunt Federation designs. So great. It was reused numerous times afterwards. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't really know. It's funny that I took so much flack, speaking of Double O, mentioning that Kunio Kawar has been redesigning the F-91 for the last 15 years. Everybody's like, hey, what are you talking about? <laughs> Suddenly now, what do I see? Everywhere I look, people talking, oh, well, you know, it's better than Okawara just redesigning the F-91 over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, wait, but that's what I said. But when I said it, it was bad. But now it's good. That's my line. Other people said <laughs> What's well, interesting to all... notice that the F91 wasn't even originally Okawara's design. The principal designer on that suit is uh, Yaz, the character designer, and really? uh, Okawara yeah. did the cleanup. Oh wow! 
I like the F91. I love the F91, especially the GFF of it. It manages to be, you know, a Gundam, but very unique and stylish at the same time. Leave it to Yas to shake some stuff up, man. Unfortunately, there's so many parts of it that have been copied over for the last 15 years by Lazy Okawara that it just kind (laughs) of detracts a little bit from the special nature of the F91. Um, Things I don't like, music score, uh, you know, probably under, after 0080, probably one of, like, the, the worst musical scores in Gundam. Not that it's a yeah. bad score, it's just really forgettable aside from the part that rips off the Imperial March from yeah. Star Wars. Oh my, no doubt. It, and it's funny because the last, the last theatrical release of Gundam was Charles Counterattack, which had a very incredible score. I mean, very very just sweeping and, and original and kind of played off kind of the melancholy tunes of um, Zeta and Double Zeta too. Oh, because all three um, scores were by the same guy. By the same yeah. guy, of course, um, Sagusa. But, um, but in this one, uh, who did? Do you remember who did the the score in this one at all? Was it the same guy as Double O? I mean, sorry, Double O Eight O. Let, let me take a quick so. look on. I'll take a quick look on I'll Anime News Network and get back to you. The music was it was lacking. I mean, the the like the the image song. Uh, what you might call it? Um, oh, the the song at the end when they're fighting. Uh, eternal Eternal Wind. Yeah, that's okay. It. That's that's a good song. Um, and no, the music for this one was Satoshi Kadokura. And what other stuff has this guy done? Uh, uh, Winda- he did the Windaria movie. Yeah, Windaria. Yeah. And that's, also the the Wacharu anime. That's pretty that's, much it. Yeah, so not a very long and accomplished career. But um, other things, you know, there's a lot of elements that are really rushed. I feel that F91 is something that it's it's better the more times you watch it, but it's still lacking regardless. Yeah. You know, things like like uh, Anamari's defection, which, you know, going just by the movie, looks like it's entirely because she's jealous of Zabine showing attention to Cecily. Um, not much exploration about what, you know, the Ronos really want to do because it's mostly focused on Iron Mask's secret plan to wipe out Earth and sort of make that like the paradise for, for him to rule over. Um, definitely it is lacking in all those respects and has some annoyances. And Seabook, you know, on the course of two hours, doesn't really just have that much of a chance to develop into anything more than just, you know, the stereotypical accidental pilot. So, you know, I don't really see him as standing in any way compared to someone like, say, Amuro or Camille who have an entire series to develop. You know, Seabook yeah. just has two hours and that's it. I mean... You know, if you look at any Gundam series, you know, two hours into it, you know, the accidental civilian pilot is still trying to figure out what the hell he's doing and trying to, like, get out of a bad situation, whereas Seabook, he's already fighting the last boss. Yeah. So, it makes you, it makes very you, rushed. It makes you regret. Yeah, exactly. It makes you regret that they didn't have the time to actually make this a series because it probably made a pretty good series. Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of a shame because the, the sort of background they set up for this period of Universal Century history is really interesting. On mm-hmm. the plus yeah. side... You know, there are a couple of uh, manga side stories and sequels. You know, you have um, Silhouette Formula 91, which is uh, about an Anaheim team, and uh, they get caught up with uh, some Federation traders, with some Neo-Zeon people, uh, with the beginnings of the Crossbone Vanguard. You've also got uh, Gundam F-90, which um, rather interesting story where, you know, the F-91 prototype, the F-90, one of the units gets stolen by the Xeon who take it to Mars where they have a base and you have basically this team uh, going all the way to Mars and having this big old battle on Mars to fight these uh, you know, Xeon and their Oldsmobile army. 
You also, of course, have, um, as Amaro mentioned, Crossbone Gundam, which picks up ten years later and has characters like Zabine and Seabook and, and Cecily, as well as, you know, new characters. And Crossbone's a great series, but it still is not the same as, you know, what uh, this show could have been, which makes me wonder, uh, given that two years later we had Tamino working on Victory, I'm sure he probably had quite a few ideas for his oh, F91 TV show that he probably just threw into uh, Victory, because you have sort of the same situation where you have, you know, um, Zanskari Empire, they rise up and basically declare themselves an empire, and the Federation really just isn't doing anything about it, and they're just kind of there doing their own thing. They don't really get involved until the very end, as they do in most major conflicts after the one-year war. So I see some definite similarities with F-91, and um, you know, I wonder how much of you know what was going to be F-91 ended up becoming Victory Gundam. Which is kind of interesting that you say that, because even the mobile suits of the Zanskar and uh of crossbone there's some similarities to them like you know that and especially some of the earlier zanskar yeah you know there's some similarities to the way the design of the mobile suit are is you know with kind of the big eyes and you know they're very compact again and, and everything like that so yeah you definitely like. see like in zolo and the zolo Watt, you see some sort of mm-hmm. uh you know design lineage from uh kind of stuff like the denanzan and all those other stuff that uh yeah the crossbones we're using. Well, well, there's there's a couple interesting things to note, just real quick offhand. Most of the people I know seem to feel that they uh, crossbone gets held, I think, in rather high regard, just because people think of it as Tomino writing when he's happy rather than depressed, and when he doesn't have a toy-hungry company breathing down his neck. Because it's basically, it's very character-focused, it's got good characters, it's got great action, it's got an interesting story and all that. Yeah. And also going off that, it seems like he intentionally set up the bridge between F-91 and Victory because if you look at the Jupiter Empire designs, they sort of have this lineage that seems to lead to Zanskar because if you look close, you can see they have the cat's eye mono eyes hidden behind yeah, their yeah. little goggles and such. And the link gets even stronger as you go into the sequels with Skullheart and then finally Steel 7, which is practically a complete segue into V Gundam along with making things feel more less like the happy and optimistic crossbone story and more like victory where it's darker and more depressing. Yeah. Well, uh, any other thoughts, guys? Would you, say, would you say that this is the series that really um, branched out um, more so in manga form than, um, than in anime form? Because now, now it's a norm that you see a lot of mangas that coex- the stories coexist at the same time that the anime series that it's based on do. But... Um, are in that same universe, but F91 seems to me like it had a lot of, uh, it was really more fleshed out as a manga than it was, you know, it, its initial offering. Definitely. Oh, definitely. And, uh, yeah, definitely. definitely because you had Crossbone later on, and then simultaneously yeah. with the movie, you have F90 and uh, Silhouette Formula. Which yeah. is a shame because half these stories aren't even out here in the States yet, and the only way you can get them is if you have to, you know, happen, happen to find the. Um, the translations online, so you know we're still in the dark on a lot of F nine one for those who watched, who sat and watched that movie and never really read anything else. But um, you never know; things may change someday. But still, F nine one is not a bad movie to me. It's just that um, without all the other supplemental material, you can be kind of in the dark about everything that's going on or the significance of everything, and um, which is a shame. But at the same time, in, in time we'll learn more. And I encourage anybody who ever that saw F nine one to take the time to try to find all the other stories that 
happened at that same time in the UC universe. But well, um, just to just kind of conclude with what everybody said here, um, I, I'm kind of in agreement. I mean, I don't feel it's a, it's a horrible, horrible sh- movie. Um, I do agree with Chris that I think sometimes it's one of those movies that the more you see it, the better it gets. Um, you know, but in terms of the animation, it is a beautiful show to watch because it is animated very well. Um, you know, a lot of great detail. Um, the music, yeah, I could, you know, kind of do without some of it. But um, other than that, um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, it seems like Tamino kind of introduced an idea of a story. And with all these other incarnations of uh, F90 and Silhouette, um, and the, even the cross, the cross, uh, crossbone, um, uh, manga series that, you know, it seems like other writers and storytellers have kind of developed it even further. But, um, this is our, our sixth edition of Gundam Roundup and uh, it was mostly Gundam F91, the motion picture. Uh, we'll be continuing this on later and with our seventh installment, which will be Mobile Suit Gundam 0083. Uh, Stardust Memories. Don't you mean Carrot Memories? Carrot (laughs) Memories. And I'm sure that that one is going to elicit a lot of of discussion. Because uh, um, (laughs) as you can see by Chris's evil laugh, uh, it may be one of those things where you want to get your popcorn ready for that one. Carrots everywhere! (laughs) Carrots! Carrots! In my dreams! Cole better get his Kevlar ready. Uh, that don't mean for when he gets shot. <laughs> I, I, when, we, when we crucify him next uh, next episode. That the 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 scene of him getting shot should have happened the first scene of the. Of the <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're gonna leave it on that. We just like to thank uh, our guest, um, you know, Armo NT on the boards uh, for joining our discussion in this and um, for his insight, but. We will be back in a little bit. This is Gundam at MAHQ. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This is, uh, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. striking out on finding your favorite manga, anime, or series merchandise nearby or online? Lost when it comes to finding pop music from Japan, Hong Kong, and other Asian markets? Well then, Florida Oriental Trading is here to help. If you live in the Central Florida area, head on over to the intersection of Colonial Drive and Mills Avenue near downtown Orlando. You'll find FOT right next to the CVS Pharmacy. For those who live abroad, find out more about our favorite store online at FloridaOrientalTrading.com or call them directly at area code 407-895-0650. FOT carries a large selection of merchandise such as art books, t-shirts, posters, wall scrolls, soundtracks, PVC figurines, models, and much, much more. Also, it's a great place to find imports of your favorite musical artists and the latest films from Japan, Hong Kong, and other Asian countries. Last but not least, Florida Oriental Trading is not only home to the best selection of anime on DVD in Central Florida, but there you'll find a wide variety of manga too. On top of that, all of their manga is always priced at 20 percent less than retail daily 20 percent that's right frank 
20%. Florida Oriental Trading is open every day except Wednesdays from 10 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You even find them open most holidays. So if you're local, stop on by and visit Quan and Debbie or give them a call at area code 407-895-0650 and give them the business. Tell them Gundam at MAHQ sent you. Did you order the code Gundam right I did! Welcome back to Gundam at MHQ. We're going to be uh, continuing our super special on Code Gayass with uh, reviews for episodes 9 through 12 of R2. So I'm going to kick it off, uh, starting off with turn 9, The Bride of the Forbidden City. Uh, so basically, you know, when, you know, from the last episode, the uh, Black Knights escaped from uh, Britannia with their little I'm Spartacus stunt with, you know, a million people dressed as zeros. So now, you know, they get to China where they have this little territory that's been given to them. So they're sort of settling down into that. Uh, we learn a couple of things. We're introduced to um, the Black Knight's new Harlock-looking uh, airship, the Ikaruga, <laughs> which uh, Rakshata reveals has uh, the Gawain's systems on it because they salvaged the poor old Gawain. It was all beaten up, so they took out... Uh, the Druid system and the the Hadron cannons and then just junk the rest. And uh, now they have this new battleship complete with Macross-style bridge bunnies running uh, the bridge. Because how can you have an anime battleship without bridge bunnies? And a couch in the bridge. Damn yeah. Right. And you the have other hijinks. Exactly. You have other hijinks going on like uh, C2 desperately searching for Tabasco sauce to put on her pizza. <laughs> She likes it. She likes it hot and spicy. Um, you have uh, some interesting plot developments that uh, put a thorn in, in Lucia's plans when Kaguya tells him that um, that Tianzi is going to be wed to uh, Odysseus, who is Lucia's ultra wimpy half brother and is the first prince of Britannia and technically uh, first in line for the throne, even though he's you know the wimpy one and Schneisel's really the one who runs the show. And obviously this is to, you know, counter Lelouch's plans and, you know, put the Chinese Federation in an alliance with um, Britannia. So right. he's planning what to do to, uh, you know, counter this move. Um, and obviously Tianzi, who's a little girl, like, you know, 11 or 12, is not too pleased about the idea of, you know, being married to some... Some old guy, <laughs> pedo bear. Is she is she really that young? She's Dude, like, she's yeah. Because because I thought they were gonna try to pull a felt and say she's like fourteen, but she's younger than felt. Wow, that's crazy. No, she's. <laughs> I mean, I mean, given her flashback that she's in later on, which I'll get to, and she's even younger there. I mean, she can't be older than eleven or twelve. Ugh. Felt at least had boobs. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, uh, pedo bear. Actually, she she is she to be about thirteen in R two, if I'm right, if my information's correct. Well, then she's really small for her age. Really? <laughs> well, she is Chinese. Okay. <laughs> now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, they learned okay, that so, uh, she's getting married. There's, 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 a, uh, you know, there's a party for this whole uh, little thing, and uh, we see uh, Millie there with, with Lloyd, and she, she makes a crack 
asking if she's still uh, his fiance, and they're introduced to uh, Cannon, who says a couple of creepy things and makes a crack about uh, you know how close he is with Schneisel in public and private. Mm-hmm. But you know, oh, yeah. says he's kidding, which you know I'm sure, despite that, set all the Yaoi fangirls on fire because I know quite a few who are all you know Cannon and Schneisel, blah blah blah. But that's not the point of this. <laughs> um, Co- thank you, Coda. Is that you? <laughs> nah, sorry. So. Everyone's kind of surprised when Schneisel shows up uh, escorting Nina. And uh, he's basically telling her that she has to, you know, carry herself proudly the way that Euphemia did. And um, what? Stay away from the tables. Yeah, that would not be good in public. <laughs> Old kitty coon there. So secretly you've got um, Lee, uh, his female, like, right-hand woman, Zoe, and these other officers are sort of talking about how you know, the eunuchs are planning to sell them out to Britannia and uh, what they're going to do about it. And um, at this point, Lee gets a little flashback. And uh, six years earlier, he uh, was stealing some medicine, and he was caught and was going to be executed for that. But Tianzi, then a uh, very young child, she uh, intervened and said that that, you know, is not a good thing. So she basically spared his life and... Um, you know, because of that, he vowed to show her the outside world because as the empress, she spent her entire life in the Forbidden City and has never set foot outside of it. Um, the party gets shaken up a little bit when uh, Zero and Colin show up. And uh, we've got outside Millie talking to Nina. And Nina, you know, ever being, you know, crazy like she is, basically just tells off Millie and says, you know, I don't... I don't need your sympathy, and you're a hypocrite, and I don't like you, and blah, 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 blah. It's like, wow, way, way to treat your friends. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's almost a confrontation when Zero shows up and the eunuchs want to arrest him, but Schneisel steps in, and um, Lulu sees this as the perfect opportunity to uh, get things done, but just as he's about to do something, Suzaku just steps right in in front of Lulush to stop him from using Gius. Right. And uh, Lelouch, he asks Nigel to uh, play chess with him, and he says that if he wins, he wants to have Suzaku. And the reason for that is he wants to take Suzaku out of the equation so he can start using Gius on people. And Schneisel does agree to this little chess match on the condition that, um, you know, if Lelouch, if Zero loses, he has to, um, you know, show his face to everyone. So, you know, you got them playing this chess game, and Lelouch is keenly aware that uh, Schneisel is the one man he could never beat at chess. So he's, you know, potentially getting a little bit uh, in over his head. And um, Schneisel basically backs him into a corner with, uh, you know, the chess move he makes, which, not knowing how to play chess, I really don't understand what's going on. I just accept it at face value. And, uh, you know, Lelouch is wondering what he's going to do, but just at that second... Nina sees him, grabs a uh, table knife, and runs in and tries to stab him. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it's a futile effort because Suzaku's holding her back, and she says to him, like, hey, you know, you're Euphemia's knight. Why are you stopping me? And he even thinks to himself, yeah, this, this is true. Why, why am I doing this? So, uh, basically, the, the party's over. And uh, the next day, we've got uh, at the chapel Odysseus and uh, Tianzi. 
And then just at that moment, uh, Lee and his men bust in and they start a coup d'etat. Oh, yeah. And uh, everything's going just as planned for him until right then uh, Lelouch comes in and uh, puts a gun to Tianzi's head and it's like, yeah, I'm crashing this party and taking the bride. <laughs> but Wedding. there's a little bit more. We get a little surprise appearance. Mr. Mr. Orange oh, yeah. appears mm-hmm. with uh, Vivi discussing, uh, you know, Lelouch and uh, it's, it's the... Uh, the much-loved return of, of Orange Coon. So that is the end of Episode 9. Uh, what I thought, um, you know, we're obviously moving into new territory with all of the Black Knights in exile now in China. And, you know, we knew from before that uh, Lee has no love for the eunuchs, as illustrated by him uh, killing Gaohai. And uh, we finally learn why it is that he has this single-minded devotion to the Empress, and that's because she basically... Uh, saved his life and he feels that he owes her and he wants to show her the outside world and he knows that you know because she's young she's being used as a puppet by the eunuchs and this is what leads him to uh, start his coup d'etat of course you know since he's sort of a brilliant strategic mind along the same lines as Lelouch Lelouch piggybacks off of that to use that to his advantage and uh, jumps in during the coup to uh, grab Tianzi. So, you guys have any uh, comments? Well, it was kind of nice to see um, that uh, putting that kind of um, the history of nobility, where they would do these um, kind of arranged marriages to quell quarrels, because it definitely seems that um, Britannia has kind of taken a new a, a new type of uh, way of dealing with Zero and Area Eleven by. I guess they kind of figure that he's going to be using the Chinese Federation to some 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 degree and uh, doing the you know doing the political marriage between Tianzi and uh, Odysseus. Uh, I guess they thought it was going to be an, an interesting way of um, kind of counteracting that. Yeah, I do like the background that we get to see of Lee there because he um, you know we, we were kind of wondering what his whole deal was because he was very blindly devoted to Tianzi and it was actually kind of nice to see that he um, once again gets one up on those uh, on the eunuchs and uh, you know seeing how corrupt they are but um, and it was also nice to see uh, Schneisel really kind of come into his own I mean we've been kind of teased with him from uh, season one and even the first part of this season uh, with his character but now we're seeing that he is definitely um, becoming a major character and that he is pretty much outside of Charles the major face of things going on with Britannia and um, you know it was kind of nice to see um, you know that he, I guess his you know just from I, I guess from playing the chest I, I think he's kind of deducing that uh, zero is Lelouch and or you know might be Lelouch so because of all the things that he's kind of finding out and you know just a just a kind of a lot of stuff speeding up some of the relationships too in that like you said um, uh, Millie and Lloyd and then the whole thing with, um, you know, Lena's, uh, or Nina's craziness and, um, you know, some of the other characters that have been introduced. But uh, a pr- pretty solid episode. Uh, I, I like kind of the way that they're using kind of the political intrigue in this one, more or less, to their, their, their uh, to, you know, to achieve what Britannia and, and even uh, the Black Knights with um, Lelouch. So 
other than that, that's kind of what I got on there. In retrospect, you know, this was this episode actually has a lot going on if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, not just in terms of plot, but in, in terms of character too, because you have Kaguya, who up to this point we've basically just written her off as being this little girl who is romantically obsessed with Zero, and she really hasn't done anything. But when she goes to the party, she talks to Suzaku, who, who as we've known for quite a while, is actually her cousin, and she's actually really, you know, incisive and pulls out a few biting comments directed at him while never breaking that same cutesy sweet tone that she's been using this entire time. And it really shows that there's a lot more depth to her than just being the little princess of the Kyoto house. Yeah. And also, the interesting thing is everyone seems to be upset about Nina and what she did, but honestly there was a bit of there was a bit of a surge of Nina popularity after this episode because the little confrontation with Millie, she showed that basically she had grown a little bit and she she wasn't hating Millie so much as wanting her to stop being superficial and basically saying, you know, you're hiding behind your family name and the school, and you can't do that anymore. I'm not hiding. Why are you? Wait, wait, wait. You say a surge in, in Nina popularity implying that people actually... actually she, she, got, she got some up some up points in this episode. Of course, she immediately lost them in the future, but, well, that's for another podcast, right? Yeah. And just really right. really quick, the thing about the chess match, uh, the, the thing, there was actually another little surge of mild annoyance here because I don't know if anyone here knows chess, but Schneisel's move in that episode was technically illegal. Oh, was it? The thing is you are not allowed to move your king into a position where an opposing piece can capture it. You can't do that. It's completely illegal. But the whole point was it didn't really matter. The game was over at that point, and Schneisel knew it. He was basically just testing Zero to see what kind of a man he was. Yeah, that was it, that was kind of an interesting. Um, that was a, that was a kind of an interesting exchange. Like I said, I mean, it definitely we can definitely see that um, you know Schneisel's really trying to see who Lelouch is, and I guess. He must know in some way that, you know, Lelouch was originally zero or, or had some suspicions. Or maybe, um, you know, because I guess she still hasn't made an appearance yet as, uh, you know, Cornelia. Maybe he knows something from her or whatever. But Yeah, if anyone knows, it's probably Schneisel. And also, yeah. just just as one cute little random quick note, it, the Empress Tenshi from, from six years ago was so damn adorable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the moe factor maximized. Oh, and now that I think about it, I forgot to mention randomly. In episode 7 or so, we actually start getting the hints that Minami, the black knight with the purple hair and the glasses, right. is just a little bit of a Lolicon. We sort of get the hints there because yeah. they show the knights watching Nunnally's speech, and he's blushing. And then mm-hmm. in the second opening, the one with World in by Flo, they actually have a little bit where he looks over his shoulder as Tenshi comes on the screen. So they're sort of implying there's something about him. It's yeah. a little minor thing, but it's still cute. If you're a pedo bear. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, cutest in character detail and attention, not, you know. Okay. <laughs> Outstanding. Thing. Oh, yeah. Just, that's right. The other little thing, the bit that everyone I was, all my friends loved about this episode, when Shinku's cutting down the guards, thinking to herself, I don't even know if I, if she knows that I'm doing this for her. And all of a sudden we hear, Shinku! And she's sitting there <laughs> waving her pinky in the air. Everyone's like, oh, that is so damn adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and disturbing at the same time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny. I was actually watching this episode on the plane flight um, when I went on vacation earlier on June, uh, late in June. I was watching this on the flight to um, to Texas, and I had people around me watching that mess. <laughs> Wondering what the heck is going on with this because they can read the subtitles, but they can't hear it because I have headphones on. And you know, I'm watching this. I'm a little. I'm 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 a little. I'm blushing a little bit because you know it's like, wait a minute. I hope they don't take this out of context. But then again. 
it, you don't have to take it out of context. It's still it's still a lollycon relationship, you know. If anything, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's neat on the on the level of the fact that he's that devoted to her, and it, it's it's nothing, it's nothing to the point of sexual yet. Although you know, eventually it will develop into something like that if they get to live that long. But um, <laughs> apparently, it's it's a knight and her knight and his princess situation, and. I I I think at the heart it's pretty pure and it's pretty cool that um he's that devoted to her, especially over the whole story with the medicine and whatnot. I like that little that little side story in the, in the episode and it it, it it in just a few moments explains why he's so devoted to her. Mm-hmm. By the and way, I'm, just, I'm I'm surprised no one has mentioned the best part of this episode. Jeremiah, no. Jeremiah, that's Millie's dress. Mill- Millie's dress. Oh, Millie's dress. Millie's dress. It was oh, on and popping. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I would have said something, but my eyes got stuck in her cleavage. That's that, that's what makes it that, so great. That happens fairly often. I just can't help it. There are just so many pictures of her with this deep cleavage. The next thing I know, I'm stuck. I can't avert my eyes. No, no. And, I, and I'm frozen. Why, why so would I can't, you avert your eyes? I don't want to. You know, avert your eyes. Yeah, we'll have to question. Where? Where are you to avert them to? They take up half the screen. Oh. Why? <laughs> just also, real quick, little opinion question here. Jeremiah's last little bit at the end. Who here thinks that his dialogue there wasn't directed at V2, but at the fans? Because, you know, what he says is, once I get prepared, there's no way that either C2 or Lelouch will be a match for me. So please look forward to it with all your strength. And I swear that was a shout-out to the audience, because they know how... The staff knows how popular Jeremiah is. They love him. They know the audience loves him. And I'm, I am about 100% sure that... They intended that line to be saying to the audience, "Yep, he's back." It seems like a fourth wall breaker. Now that you bring, now you bring up the context <laughs> of that, it does seem like a fourth wall breaker. And it, it, you know what? It probably is. It probably was a shout out to the fans. If anything, it got me excited. Oh yeah. <laughs> so he's Deadpool. Deadpool. Well, only if he makes V two say spatula. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Any other uh, comments oh, on episode nine, guys? No. No, it's a great setup episode for episode uh, episode ten, which is um, definite um, another setup episode or kind of a. I, I look at it as kind of a uh, what's the word, a segueing episode because a lot of fighting happens happens in episode ten, um, which is uh, when Shen when the Shen Hu shines. Um, just a little bit of uh, plot points. There's a lot of fighting. A whole lot of fighting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who is fighting? Oh my gosh, um, Toto and Suzaku. Um, Callan, uh, I'll get into it. Here we go. Here's some um, some highlights from the episode. Zao is informed that Zero has appeared and wonders if he used their plan to his advantage. Lelouch asks Lee if he if he thinks he can give Tianzi freedom. Just then, Toto smashes into the chamber with his new Zangetsu. Um, Toto and Suzaku battle. Oh boy, do they! And um, towards the end, um, damages uh, damages Suzaku's uh, lance a lot. Um, Toto wants to finish things, but Lelouch orders him to retreat because Suzaku cannot pursue. Uh, Lelouch tells Tianzi, after capturing her, that he needs her help to create the United States of China as part of the alliance. Tianzi doesn't quite understand, and he reminds her that the eunuchs intend to sell her to Britannia. Hence the marriage. <laughs> On the Avalon, Suzaku helps, offers to help rescue Tianzi once the Lancelot is repaired. But Cannon points out, that any further military action on their part would have to be requested by the Chinese. And they're kind of caught in a catch-22, basically, especially towards the end, where um, they, could, they could easily go anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, after running out of power, Callan is captured by Lee and delivered to Suzaku later on in the episode. Uh, the eunuchs think the Black Knights are fools, but 
are they're shocked when Asahina and Ats- the Atsuki the Ats- Ak- Akatsuki Akatsuki I'm sorry A- Akatsuki Akatsuki oh I'm, I'm sitting here <laughs> it's like I'm reading a teleprompter sometimes <laughs> it's like you're um, reading a teleprompter of fail uh, I know yeah, I know epic <laughs> epic fail how many times has this thing been used <laughs> and the Akatsuki squad appear and attack. At the Forbidden City, Anya shows Millie and Suzaku her cell phone pictures. She looks at a young picture of Lelouch and wonders if he's the same person. Um, during the battle, a nearby ca- canal ex- um, collapses and floods the area with water. And Lelouch doesn't think that's an issue because he removed the amount of water. However, the land becomes mucky, causing the Black Knight's units to get stuck in the muck. Um, the Chinese forces then move forward, and Dehart retreats his suggestion to uh, reiterate his suggestion to retreat. Uh, Lelouch agrees and sees that Lee has his mental skills as well as Suzaku's piloting abilities, kind of um, the best of both worlds, like Reese's Pieces. Uh, <laughs> um, the eunuchs uh, eventually turn on Lee and Zhao because they have their own reinforcements, the Avalon and the Knights of Rounds. And um, towards the end of the episode, um, um, Although Lelouch is clearly zero on the battlefield, um, there's a great twist at the end where um, Millie calls home, and lo and behold, Lelouch is on the phone at the um, Ashford Academy. And um, when Millie re- relays that she and um, she and Nina are okay, um, it is to the great relief of everybody, including rivals, who of course is crushing on Millie hard. Mm-hmm. And so, um, how did Lelouch instantly transport to the academy? Well, we find that out in the next episode. But before we get to that, anybody have any thoughts? Just really quick, while it's on my mind, this episode really illustrates what a complete and total Thebe Odysseus is, because you'll notice yeah. he's always looking like he's going to run away or cry or something. And then in this episode, and then in this episode, someone asks, "How's Prince Odysseus?" And Schneisel responds, "Well, he's finally calmed down. He's in his room resting." And I'm like. What the hell? Is he a toddler or something? Come on. He's, he's a complete uh, tool. He's a yeah. simp. Herb. <laughs> I'm surprised he hasn't been taken out yet. The, you know the only be, reason... He, he think he'd be the easiest one to kill. The only reason he's first prince is because his, his mother was the principal wife and he was the firstborn son. That's the only yeah. way yeah. a complete knob like him could get such a rank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, you know, it was, it was a, like we said, it was a pretty nice battle episode. Um, you know, we get to see what the Akatsukis can do and even the Ikaruga. And, uh, you know, I, it, you do start <laughs> feeling sorry for Tianzi, though, because now everybody's just using her to, uh, you know, to their own, um, their own, you know, their own bidding. So. <laughs> Lelouch included. She's just sitting there with her big gulp, being completely lost. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, another pawn what, in the game. In, in, a, in, a, in some in some crazy way, her and Odysseus are probably the best for each other, even though they'd probably just sit in the room being like, "Huh, what? Did you want to say something? Do we have yeah. any tea?" <laughs> <laughs> but um. And and you saw the old uh, you saw the old um, uh, double cross happening with um, you know with the eunuchs yeah with, with yeah with the eunuchs um, you know bringing in the knights of the round and everything so um, you know like you said a, a pretty good uh, a pretty good episode um, you know really kind of amping up kind of 
kind of the backseat of action that we've had for a while, as in terms of mecha action. I mean, yeah. we really hadn't any, you know, mech on mech violence for a while. So oh. we, we, we definitely uh, we put it up a couple areas We needed here. a mech orgy. We were about due. <laughs> <laughs> and the Ikaruga is too much like the Black Arcadia. It's got the, it's it's got the best name ever, man. <laughs> the Ikaruga, man. That's awesome. Oh, no. It, it doesn't work unless it fires white and black bullets. Oh. Yeah, it does, it's, it's not a bullet eater. Although I have to say, I have to say, I do give it extra points for the fact that the bow-mounted hadron cannons are exactly just—they took the um, Gavin's shoulders and just slapped him onto the battleship. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Harlock would be proud. He would be proud. All you need to do is put a skull and crossbows with a with the Black Knight symbol is, and you got the Arcadia right there, kind of. <laughs> he gives his thumbs up. Just as long as they don't sport the skull and crossbones, man, he'll be all right with it. <laughs> Man, but um, any other thoughts? Ah, well, you missed one important thing in this episode, actually. Oh, geez, I'm sure I did. Well, first off, obviously, this is the debut of the Shinhu, which we get yes, to see yeah. is pretty damn powerful. Mm-hmm, it's yeah. sort of, it's actually sort of earned the fan nickname of Talgius because uh, it plays into the exact same legend of the Talgius that it's so powerful no one could use it properly, and <laughs> we get to see Shinhu just completely mastering the battlefield at 40% power. Wow. Yeah. And then, of course, even more importantly, Callan gets captured. That's yes, right. I, d- I did bring that up. She's captured and then um, delivered to Suzaku, of course. But um, I don't think this is the episode where you see her in, um, in a straitjacket. Well, she even makes a straitjacket look sexy, I'll tell you. That's that's much that that is next episode if I be, if I recall. But um no it was it, it, it you raise a very good point. Um to me it's very super robotish. I it, when I see when I see that suit of um of Lee's, it's it's just it just has that super robot look to it that makes it cool to me. It kind of has a retro look too. I, I like the Shinhu's design. It's rather interesting. It's yeah. it's a nightmare, but it still stands out when compared to Britannian and Japanese models. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely got its own look, and <laughs> the talkies. The more I play, the more I watch <laughs> this show, um, the more I can see the um, the designs in the show have a lot to do with it. it I don't know if you guys ever played a game on uh, back in the day on the Dreamcast called Tech Romancer. Yeah. Oh I, I, yeah. I believe Akiman did a lot of the uh, mech designs for those um, suits. I, it's Shoji Karamori, I guess, directed the game, but Akiman Akiman helped out with the designs of that, just like he does with the show. And I could see a little bit of um, a little bit of a, a Techromancer in uh, Code Geass when I watch it now, especially with some of the suit designs. It's it's, it's trippy, but um, I just thought I'd bring that up. Especially some of the suits have a very super robot feel now, as opposed to the real world feel that some of the older um, uh, nightmares that we saw earlier in the series do. I have no problem with that because Code Geass has always been a hybrid of the two anyway. Well, honestly, I never really thought the robots were that important. It's yeah. Some people call it the mech show for people who hate mech shows, but really it's basically just a conspiracy drama that happens to have robots. It's not like a pure robot show like Gundam. Yeah, yeah. true. So even if things get a bit super robotish with like the Shinhu or later on the Gurin, it, it really doesn't bother me. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, it, like I said, I mean, you'll go episodes without any any battles. Any really, uses. I mean, you'll see the mechs in and around here and there, but. You know, this was like we said, probably the real first time that we really had a, an out-and-out battle in a while, uh, be- between uh, the different forces. So, since episode six, anyway. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Re- no. Last episode we had Tomaki's little comment 
where he, he just continues to show what a great character he is by going after the guys and saying, hey, did you know? Eunuchs are men, but they don't got balls. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And of course, so many t- and of course thanks, in this episode... Thanks for we, uh, Captain Obvious. And in this episode, we have him basically playing co-pilot as C2 drives the escape car, and he keeps giving her bad directions, and she has to turn it <laughs> in the last second. And we get to see the, the little... Ant- the sort of violent antagonism the two of them had in the first season seems to have given way to this almost playful teasing. Sort of like she has with Lelouch in the first season. Very true. Definitely. Because um, I remember um, she was giving him a lot of grief. Uh, when, uh, I remember in the earlier season where um, she didn't like how he addressed her. <laughs> yeah. Stupid. And uh, called him a Neanderthal or something like that. And it was just pretty funny how um, he, he comes off that that like that. But he's pretty astute, man. I, I, I'd like to see where they go with this character if they don't kill him off first. He's been pretty lucky lately. And um, it's just he's kind of a wild card. Mm-hmm. I look at him as. But anyway. Um, if anything, uh, anybody else have anything left to say? Well, they did set up the little connection between Anya and Lelouch here, which is going to become very important later on. I say this the day that episode 20 airs, and when you watch that, <laughs> you will know exactly what I mean. Not going to say any more, <laughs> but let's just say the connection between Anya and Lelouch is going to be extremely important. You awesome. think? No, just give him fair warning. I was just saying. Way to foreshadow. Yes. <laughs> you are a master at foreshadowing. Yes, indeed. Hmm. You can't see it, but I'm doing the Dr. Evil finger thing here. <laughs> well, then, we're moving on to turn 11, the power of the will. We're, pick, we're going to pick this one up. It picks up right off after episode 10, where the student council finds out that Millie's okay. And what we get, Shirley looks like she's about on the verge of tears, and so Lelouch hands her a handkerchief to dry her eyes. At which point, Rollo says, hey, brother, can we talk in private? So they go off to the library. And go into an elevator hidden behind the bookshelf, I note, that is accessed by pulling on a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannia. (laughs) And as Rolo and Lelouch go down the elevator, Lelouch takes off the mask, and guess what? It's Sayoko, wearing an incredibly scary, scarily accurate mask. And they go down into the base and meet with Villetta, who gives them basically an update on what's happening in China, which I guess could serve as a recap if someone managed to miss the previous episode. And where we pick up, in the previous episode, Black Knights were cornered and ended up retreating into the tomb where the 88 past emperors of China were buried. And at this point, Ogi thinks that they're going to be okay, but the Chinese start bombarding them. Shinku tries to get them to stop. It doesn't work because the eunuchs are turning on him and the Black Knights at the same time. And Shinku decides to start trying to fight the eunuchs, but he gets blocked by Gino and the Tristan, and they get into a little fight. And let me see. At this point, things are actually bad enough that even C2 goes out to pilot because she has her own personal custom pink-colored Akatsuki Chikisan type. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Why? Why pink? Why did it have to be pink? But she shows that she's she shows that she's at least a decent pilot in this episode. But anyway, you know the the fight continues, and Zero actually contacts the Unix and tries to negotiate with them. He tries to say, you know, if you don't stop this, you're going to kill the Empress. And at this point, the eunuchs just completely kick the dog and are like, do you think we care? It's like, you'd go out of your way to avoid stepping on bugs when you walk on the ground? Come on, she's as worthless as toilet paper. And just, they completely show what assholes they are. (laughs) And they actually consider the bargain they have with Britannia to be good, which is they cede territory and they get peerage. And, of course, the political marriage. 
but Lelouch is basically accusing them of selling out their entire nation for the sake of getting Britannia on their side. And the, the battle just continues, it gets more intense, and just when things start looking really bad, Tenshi decides to run out on the Ikaruga's deck and tries to shout at everyone to stop the battle. <laughs> and, of course, everyone notices this. So the eunuchs order them to start opening fire. Shinku dashes in with the Shinhu and uses its spinning slash harkins to try to shield her. But obviously, it's not going to hold up. And there's this moment where they basically get their own little speech, and he tells her, he tries to tell the Empress to run away so she can finally see the outside world like he promised her. And with tears in her eyes, she says that if, she can't, if he can't be there with her, then there's no point. And it's very Aww. cute. And Shinku knows he's going to die, and he, just beg, he calls out and begs for God or anyone to save the Empress. Then the bombardment stops, and we hear a very familiar, very slick voice saying, Congratulations, Shinku. I'm going to grant your wish. <laughs> it's Lelouch. He's here. He's got a new nightmare. Well, that's charlatan. This episode, this is where we get the Shinkiro, Japanese for Mirage, which is Lelouch's personal nightmare. Obviously, the eunuchs see the perfect opportunity to take out both the Empress and Zero at the same time, so they have everyone fire. And then, to their complete surprise, the Sh- the Shinkiro busts out an energy field that manages to block everything without even buckling. According to Rakshata, it's got a system called the Absolute Protection Territory, which is the strongest defensive system in the world. It's basically battle- a battleship-class beam barrier on a nightmare frame. And in order to coordinate it, it has the Druid system running. And then Lelouch busts out his offensive capabilities, firing a liquid metal prism out of the, sh- out of the Shinkiro's chest and bouncing his phase transition cannon off of it, completely ripping through the battlefield and tearing up the eunuch's forces. And targeting only them. I mean, it looks like yeah, chaos. But it does. But you see it executed, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's like every enemy mech is targeted and none of his own are. It's, it's, it's insane. It's just an incredible little trick there. Like as another thing coordinated via the druid system, obviously. But it's basically a combination of druid system and Lelouch's own skill. But anyway, it, at this point we get a little conversation between Lelouch and Shenku where... Basically, he says, you know, at this point, you realize that I'm the only friend you've got in the world. Shenku says he refuses to be a subordinate, and Lelouch says, don't be silly. A man with your talents could lead a nation by himself. So he asks Shenku if he thinks that one person can turn the tide of a battle, and of course, he dismisses that, says that the real key to battle isn't tactics, but strategy. At this point, the eunuchs get the word that rebellions are breaking out all over the Federation. Major cities like Beijing and Jakarta and Shanghai, everyone is rebelling. And we find out the reason. That little conversation where the eunuchs revealed their true colors, guess who broadcasted it? <laughs> yeah, the entire thing at this point, everything up to the Black Knights being trapped in the tomb and being nearly killed, was all part of Lelouch's plan to engineer a public confession. So just, yeah, way to go, Lulu. At this point, things start turning around for the Black Knights. We get a scene where the remaining Holy Swords and C2 team up on Anya, but when C2 clashes with the Mordred, there's this brief moment, this flash, where both of them sort of get a shock sequence, like like C2 pulled on Suzaku back in the first season. And she seems to recognize what's going on, but we don't know what at this point. The, the Black Knights deploy their ground forces, and obviously they think it's a dumb move, but at this point, Schneisel decides to pull out of the battle and order a retreat. Because at this point, you know, he basically agrees with Zero and comments that even though they could take out the Black Knights right now, a country isn't its, sim- isn't its system or its government but the people. And of course, both he and Luce think to themselves, what would the Emperor have done in this situation? 
Shinku breaks into the into the eunuch's fortress and executes them in rather dramatic fashion. <laughs> but unfortunately, we learn that Callan was handed over to the Knight of Seven, and she's being taken away by Britannia. And Lelouch is pretty convinced that at this point, Suzaku's just trying to get back at him personally by taking away everything that he, that he has. In the desert, we have Bartley and the members of the Kodar team who have apparently been sent by the Emperor to the, to the mysterious ruins from the previous episode, where they've been summoned by V2 and Jeremiah to finish adjusting him so he can take on Lelouch. Now, we, we jump ahead about a day or so, I'm not absolutely sure, where we get the, final, we get the meeting between the, between the Chinese Federation and the Black Knights. And at this point, Diethard suggests to Zero that they, ha- that they arrange their own political marriage for the Empress to a, J- to a Japanese person in order to cement the alliance. And Lelouch starts to think about going along with it, but then Kaguya interrupts and says, You can't do it! It's a matter of love! And then just t- t- to Diethard's complete annoyance... All the women of the Black Knights tell him to shut up, <laughs> including Chiba, who you don't think would care, Rakshata, who you really don't think would care, and just to top it all off, C2, who, I mean, that's out of left field. All the women say, no political marriage. <laughs> and so Zero's put on the spot between agreeing with Hard and pissing off all the women. At that point, Tamaki comes up because he wants to discuss his rank in the Black Knights, so Lelouch seizes the opportunity to basically get away from the heat. He starts talking with Tamaki just a little, but then Shirley calls. He basically asks for her advice in how to break up a relationship, and she says, you can't do that. Love, is, you know, love is, gives you real power. Love makes you strong. You can't just break up a relationship like that. And at this point, apparently for the first time ever, Lelouch realizes exactly what Shirley means because he realizes this whole time he's been doing all this for Nunnally, and he's realized that his love for her has given him the strength to come this far. So he goes back out to the group, and he tells them that there's not going to be a political marriage because, as this battle is proven, the true strength of the Black Knights is the power of the heart. And, of course, the girls are happy. Detard's like, power of the heart? What? <laughs> but Leaf comments that he thinks he's finally getting to understand what kind of a person Zero is, and they shake hands, and basically they become friends. Now we cut back to we cut back to Ashford briefly. Shirley's in the library wondering why Lelouch is acting so strange. When she runs to Sayoko Lulu, who is just leaving the hidden elevator. And it looks like Shirley's about to go for the elevator and trying to see what's there. When Sayoko figures out the best way to distract her, kiss her. Uh, we cut back to the Ikaruga briefly where Lelouch talks with C2 about the Geass cult how she used to be the leader of it, and they know it's somewhere in the Chinese Federation. He basically tells her to go and to use the Black Knight's resources to try to find it while he heads back to Japan to cover his identity. He uses the Shinkiro's transforming submarine mode to get back. Mm-hmm. But back at school, he sees that Shirley, Shirley wants, tries to talk to him. Then all of a sudden, he's interrupted by the sudden arrival of Anya and Gino, who are in school uniforms. Oh, Apparently, no. they've, enli- they've joined the school, and now they're part of the student council. And that's where we hit the end of the episode. Hmm. A lot of stuff going on uh, there. Yeah, it's interesting. They basically split the resolution of last episode's battle into one and a half episodes. Yeah, so we have that taking up the first half of the episode with the resolution taking up the second. It's nice to see that, um, you know, finally, even though Shinku and, uh, and you know, he still has apprehensions about Zero, towards the end he kind of figures out what he's doing and, you know, 
you know, is going to kind of be on his side of, you know, dealing with the United States or, you know, the United Federation that they're trying to, you know, make there. So a lot of other crazy things, too, with, um, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the Sayako double of Lelouch <laughs> causing more problems to poor short Shirley. You know, she's not she's not confused enough. That's got to, you know, definitely <laughs> put it in, um, you know, a lot more uh, a lot more problems there for the relationship. And like I said before, this episode introduces the Shinkiro, but on a personal note, I, I just don't really care for it. Maybe maybe it's just me, but I like I like the Gavin because I felt it had style, and even if it was limited, Lelouch did a whole lot with what little it had. But the Shinkiro, I, like, I agree wholly. Oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly, man. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, no, the Shin the Shinkiro seems to be. I don't want to jump and use the term hacks that everyone seems to love throwing around, but. You know, basically all it does is it sits it, it sits and spams because it's got Hadron guns yeah. in hands, it's got the phase cannon in the chest, and that's basically it. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't like the way that he has to act like um, an organist to oh know, yeah the, to activate everything. Uh, yeah, I forgot the Shinkiro's keyboard control system, which apparently is what coordinates the absolute protection territory and the phase cannon. We gotta we gotta dramatize it even more. <laughs> And of course, when, when people first heard that it was going to be keyboard controlled, they were like, oh, man, he's going to use Quake 3 setup. Quake 3! <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, I'm right there with you with that suit, man. I, I, I don't like it as much as I, I, I liked his original. The, 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 and it, on top of that, it's not named after anybody from um, the Arthur, Arthurian legend. So well, it's, like, no, uh, it's, a, it's a Japanese nightmare. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. So, it, of course, it's given, it's, given, um, it's given a Japanese name, of course. It's just given an uh, esoteric concept name, in this case Mirage, to go along with, you know, Slash the Moon, Dawn, Crimson Lotus, and all that. Exactly. And um, I don't know. Just it just seems it's it, to me it just in 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 design and in you know the fact that it was a two seater the original and I love that about that was um was another cool thing about the Gavin, but um the Shinkiro is you know it's a it's a single seater so a it's cool because Lelouch pilots it by himself as opposed to needing assistance from a co pilot but still it's I I I miss the old I miss the old suit. That was one of the one of the hard times, hard things I had to deal with in season two when I knew that suit wouldn't be coming back. Yeah. But the Lancelot would be. It's like damn. Yeah. Well, there's actually, there's actually just one cute little note that's been commented on. When the show first came out, a lot of people drew comparisons between the Lancelot and the Nirvash Type Zero from Eureka <laughs> Seven. And then of course Shinkiro comes along and it looks it looks a good bit like the Nirvash The End, piloted by yeah. piloted by Anemone. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of sort of completes the pairing there. So just like in Eureka 7, we have the white mech and the black mech that look similar facing off against one another. Yeah. Very true. That is true. But Chris, any any things? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's another straightforward episode. Personally, I really love the scene where the Black Knight women just one by one get on D-Hard's case. It starts off yeah. with Kaguya, and it's like, oh, oh, please stop being such a little romantic child. And then C2's like, no, I agree with her. And it, he starts getting a little more annoyed. And then Chiba just says, look, just shut up already. And he gets really annoyed. And then Rakshata just laughs at him. And yeah. it, it was just so funny. Seeing Deedhard, who's Mr. Cool and in Control, getting completely floundered by women. Poor George Nakata. <laughs> or Jameson Price in the future. Yeah, Jameson, and Jameson Price in the future. Uh, they both excellently play those characters, by the way. But... um. 
But uh, yeah, that, I love that scene, especially since um, there was another girl that had had Tianzi's back later on, and that was Shirley, but not knowing it. Of course. And you know, if, was, you know, if Kellen was there, she would have agreed with him. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, he definitely. was screwed. He was screwed from conception. Yeah, this is the. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, like you mentioned, this is the one where we get Callan in the straitjacket. And apparently we mm-hmm. learned that that restraining costume C2 seems so fond of in the first season is the standard outfit they give female prisoners in Britannia. Oh, of course. Yeah. Because the, ma- the male version is the one we saw Toto wearing back in the first season. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as well as Lelouch in the flashbacks at the start of R2. Yeah. So. Very true. So it's not, it's, not, it's not something special they created for CC. It's something that any, any prisoner or crazy person would get. That's female. <laughs> but, well, I guess that will take us to our final review of the day, which would be uh, Turn 12, which is a uh, codename Love Attack. And I know we had commented earlier, uh, if you wanted to cue the Benny Hill music, uh, you might as well just uh, cue it up for this review. But it actually starts off a little serious. Um, you know, Lelouch is down in the base, and he's pretty annoyed that now, you know, the, the Knights of the Rounds, Gino and Anya, are now in the student council at the Ashford Academy. So I guess he's worried that that's going to, you know, go into his, some of his, um, you know, uh, some of Sayoko's double time and all that. So, um and he's also kind of mad at Sayoko kissing Shirley because uh, he's realizing what type of problems that that's going to be, uh, uh, you know, taking taking up for him when he has to go to school the next time. But um, we also see that uh, she uh, Sayoko is now not only his double but his uh, personal assistant, telling him, you know, showing him his his daily schedule and some of the things he's got to do, and um, you know, through as being Lelouch the student and Zero the revolutionary, so. And just on cue, we see that, you know, Shirley's kind of questioning if she's dating Lelouch now because of this kiss. And um, as later on, as Lelouch is done doing some doing some things with the Chinese Federation, he's sneaking back into the school and he is actually uh, confronted by Anya. And uh, she asks him the little picture that she's been looking at on her phone, which is Lelouch as a child, if that's him. And of course, he says it's, it's not. So. Um, you know, but, you know, he gets through that and then, um, you know, uh, Gino and R- R- Rival show up and they want to go do some underground chess gambling. And then, oh, yeah. uh, Lelouch then runs away with a flock of girls that appear. And then, you know, as he, he runs into Shirley again, so. <laughs> oh, she is not happy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, this is when it gets really crazy because then Millie announced that there is a Cupid's Day event where uh, boys and girls are going to wear heart-shaped colored hats, which basically look like butts. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you know, if you get one, if you get, you know, your crushes or your love's hat, you, you know, you, you put your color on their head and they put their color on, on your head. So, um, you know, we just have some craziness going on with that. But Don't forget, it's president's orders. If you can get someone else's hat and put it on, then you are officially a couple by her. That's right. It was presidential order. So, and uh, of course, you know, uh, Shirley's worried about getting Lelouch as a couple other girls as we see later on. But, um, <laughs> you know, silliness aside, we do get to see some interesting stuff. We get to see the Britannian capital, the Pentadragon, 
um, and we see uh, Schneisel, Odysseus, and we're introduced. Uh, are, are we introduced with them, or are they introduced earlier? No, this is really this is their introduction. This is Guinevere and Carlin, and we get to see the Knight of One, and they're basically talking about some of the things that are going on in Area Eleven. Um, and Guinevere actually says, you know, make some more notes about Cornelia because nobody really knows where she's at. And, um, you know, they're even wondering if Guilford even knows. So, um, you know, we get some things that they're going to, you know, Schneisel wants some divisions moved over to uh, Mongolia to, um, you know, kind of quell this whole Chinese Federation thing. And uh, later on, you know, this, which was kind of an interesting thing, we see uh, uh, Bismarck Walston, which was the Knight of One, he meets up with uh, Charles and tells him what... Um, Schneisel's doing and you know um, it's kind of an interesting comment that you know Charles comments that only fools rage war yeah. and uh, because of what he's doing so once again we get later on we're, we're back in China and we are finally get to see Cornelia and oh, yeah. she breaks into the uh, Gius order and she you know she's making her way through there and um, you know at the same time Guilford's wondering where Cornelia is so we get kind of that, you know, that connection there. And we're back at school. There's still more craziness going on with the Cupid's Day event. Um, Lelouch is getting chased around. Um, you know, he's surrounded by girls. And then at the last second, the worst thing that could happen is Rolo uses his Gias to freeze and drag Lelouch into a locker. Uh, which was don't, don't forget something here. Just before, right before starting the event, Millie announces that Whoever catches Lelouch will have their club's budget increased by ten times. So now right. the entire school, male and female, is going after him. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's uh, just some more craziness going on there, and especially with Rolo with his little fixation on uh, Lelouch, brother. <laughs> we're back in China, and we we see Bartley again at the Gaius Order, and then uh, Cordelia comes up. And, uh, you know, Bartley's telling um, Cornelia that she needs to take care of Charles because he's only gotten them on a path of destruction. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of we go back more into this whole thing with um, the the uh, Cupid's Day thing. I don't want to go too much into it, but we just start seeing Gino's getting chased. And then at the last minute, Lelouch um, switches with Psycho in the library. And then oh, yeah. all oh, of a sudden God. you see. <laughs> you see Lelouch go from not being able to walk and talk at the same time for, to being like uh, the uber athlete and doing <laughs> pirouettes and loop-de-loops. I mean, he's jumping about, off a dude's heads, man. That just about everything. Don't forget doing the Naruto run, too. Yes. <laughs> I forgot about that. And uh, Anya gets kind of caught up in the whole thing, and she gets to Mordred, and she's uh, looking for Lelouch herself. And as the... Mordred is being spotted flying over, um, uh, flying over the Ashford Academy. The night police are dispatched, thinking that there's some problem with the Black Knights, and a whole bunch of things just start going on. And she basically smashes it into the one of the into the library, the Mordred, and then we just get kind of ended up with Shirley asking Lelouch why he kissed her, and he said because he likes her. But she says she's lying and, you know, all this other stuff. And, you know, later on, 
the uh, Gino talks with the police and tells that, you know, it's a big misunderstanding what was going on there. So, but, um, you know, and then um, we just get some few little things that Millie's telling Lucia she's uh, going to get graduated and everybody congratulates her on her upcoming thing and she then cancels her engagement to Lloyd to now become a TV weather girl. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of funny. And uh, kind of the end, we end with uh, Shirley kind of walking through a street and uh, we then see Jeremiah and he does something with, he uses what's called the GS canceller which basically undoes any Gius that somebody, any Gius influence that's on anyone. So um, as soon as, and it's kind of a, a multi-directional thing, so he can kind of cover a square, uh, a large square area. How about and, Rolos? Yeah, actually more so than Rolos. Yeah. But um, he does it, and then suddenly, surely, the Charles's fake memories are undone, and Shirley starts to remember everything, and about Lelouch being zero, her dad's death, and Fiend. So, any thoughts on this episode, guys? <coughs> hmm. Well, again, again. Like, like I said for episode five, what can you say about an episode that fits the Benny Hill theme perfectly? <laughs> yeah. This is just, Millie decides she's had enough of Lelouch and Shirley doing the runaround and being just the inanimate couple. So she engineers the entire event in an attempt to try to force them together. But, of course, we get this great little scene where, in the past, we've had Lelouch facing off against against people like Clovis and Cornelia and Schneisel. And in this episode, we get to see him having a tactics battle with Millie. Yeah. <laughs> where she's got the entire school at her disposal, and all he has is Ninja Sayoko. <laughs> and Rolo. And Rolo. Yeah. But I gotta say, just the one moment that is probably great for humor but he's also going to completely destroy Lelouch at the school one of the things Millie sends after him is the fantasy selection team which is a group of yeah. which is looks like basically the the Ashford Academy host club <laughs> a bunch of girls wearing skimpy or tight outfits and they're like he's a, he's a guy he doesn't know he'd be able to resist us and Sayaka runs up says female bodies are useless against me and runs away from them <laughs> and yeah, you know that that's not going to go over well at the school, is it? Yeah. And of the course, that of that control. seduction team uh, was headed by headed by the uber busty Mia, which you know is sort of like this yeah. moy fantastic character that received a lot of attention, even though she's just in this one episode. Ugh. Yeah, basically, yeah, she was basically the whole thing, like they did last season with Sophie, who was Shirley's roommate, where. They gave a, some idol actress a uh, one-shot character. Oh, okay. It's nothing big. But yeah, like, like we sort of talked about in our not, pre-show not, stuff. Not like, her, not like her boobs. No. Yeah. Well, no, like <laughs> so we said. Actually, pre- uh, Sorry? Roll, why don't you roll that, uh, that boob list for us, Amara, since you... Since <laughs> yeah. You know uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, apparently sometime, I don't know when, I'm not sure where this came from, but the producers <laughs> did a inofficial breast ranking list for the series and, and ranking in what way and biggest biggest okay they, they do this all the time every single show you know stuff like magical girl lyrical nanoha does it super robot wars does it everyone does it oh, yeah. and yeah. of course for geas they, they busted out the list too so of course um that's what we got here and according to this is only season one though so obviously mia would destroy that list now but right now number one is i'm sure we've all expected thanks to the chinese federation arc is millie Number two, and this one is the honest surprise, is Marianne. 
is in <laughs> Malusha's dead mother. Yeah. Biggest, second biggest boobs in the show. I mean, who knew? Third Couldn't place. Really tell. Third place is Callan. I'm like, is he just just gonna skim through, point out the important ones? Cornelia is number five. Cecile is number seven, despite that dress of hers. Raksharta oh, is number eight. So really, what the hell? Where'd that come from? <laughs> Yuffie is nine. Shirley's ten. C2 is twelve. Sayoko is fourteen. Nanali is seventeen, and the smallest <laughs> on the list is Kaguya. <laughs> Oh, she's a child. <laughs> oh, yeah. What about Tiazzi? Where's she uh, at? Like I said, this, this is just season one. Tenshi's probably oh. below Kaguya because she's yeah, 13. <laughs> yikes. yikes. We'll have yikes. to consult Pedal Bear about that one, but he's not on this episode. Pedal Bear. <laughs> Sorry, Canadian Pedal Bear. <laughs> or he'll but be on the thread. The other, th- Just kind of one of the other things I liked about it is um, we get to see my girl Cornelia. Uh, kind of show back up and showing how, you know, everybody's been kind of wondering where she's at. Well, lo and behold, she's at the Gias Order. When and I saw she, her, I became schoolgirl giddy. Yes. <laughs> Everyone did. Yeah. Don't apologize. We all became schoolgirl giddy. Because it, it, it's just amazing, you know, her, you know her, her fierceness and, you know, her tactics and everything, you know, her cunning as a commander and a warrior. I mean, they're even talking about him at the, uh, you know, chief of staff meeting there at the, uh, in, in the Britannian homeland. So, exactly. and it was kind of interesting to see that, you know, it, it's amazing with as many characters have been cycled through, um, you know, live and dead that one of the first, one of the original people you first see Bartley, he's still kicking. He's still kicking. And he's still pretty important. <laughs> he poor handless Bartley. Yeah. That poor. Yeah. It just managed to hold on despite all odds, right? That yeah. Poor bastard. That he just poor keeps bastard getting into bad situation after bad situation after bad situation. <laughs> You've he got has, to save me. He has got the devil's luck because <laughs> it just keeps going, you know, from bad to worse. And oh, and as we'll probably see later on, um, you know, it's it, I'm sure it's going to get worse for him in the end. So. <laughs> Oh, and of course, we get something important here where when Cornelia shows up, his reaction is, oh, thank God, please, you have to save us. The Emperor is going yeah. to destroy the world. Yeah. yeah, which is why my thing with this episode is, as indicated in my review, um, you know, we're almost with this is pretty much the halfway point of, of this season. And so there's a lot of stuff to be done to stop and do yet another school antics Benny Hill episode. And yeah. there's all this great stuff in the background with Cornelia and the Gius Order. But that's the problem. It's just in the background for a few minutes out of this whole episode. Well, I actually, to be honest with you, I actually think they should flip the devotion. Like, um, I don't really have too much of a problem with kind of the antics, but maybe less, you know, maybe if you flipped it where the Gius Order stuff, the time they used for the Gius Order was the school antics. Yeah. And then, you know, the other stuff is kind of, you know, because like you said, we are pretty much halfway through the show and, and, uh, you know, we're, there is a lot of stuff that is just like, and, you know, with her showing back up, it's like, oh, boy, here's another thing. Where, where's she been for, you know? I'd love to know that backstory, you know? So, um, but you I, do notice her arm is still messed up. It is. I was going to bring that up, too. Yeah. They, ne- they haven't addressed that yet. I mean, this is episode 12. We're eight episodes ahead at this point, And they still haven't addressed what exactly is wrong with her arm. You'd think that if Britannian medical science could <laughs> mal back from being turned into Swiss cheese... They could, they could set a broken arm. Well, so if, what I would figure is if she's underground and nobody knows where the hell she is, she's yeah. probably just been hiding out and probably didn't get proper medical treatment. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think in a lot of ways she's been helped by – I think there's a kind of 
and this is always kind of normal within like nobility like this, like there's certain loyalist factions within like I think in a way she might have been saved by like the loyalist the underground loyalist faction of, you know, that are behind Cornelia or a certain type of thing. So I, I agree with Chris that maybe she did, you know, she because she was comp- nobody knew where she was. I mean, there was even, just like even Guilford didn't know. Yeah, and I, it, she was she was completely off the grid. You think she could have gotten medical treatment before she vanished, though? That basically assumes <laughs> that she instantly went from being injured and bleeding at the end of the past season to disappearing without even yeah. stopping that, to take care of herself. You have a point there, and she could have been in intensive care for a, for a time, but maybe she left before it fully healed. She yeah. could have. And and that and that and that could definitely play a factor. I mean, yeah, she she's definitely focused on something, and she knows you know she definitely wants to take care of the Gius Order. All I know is this broad is hard. She's so hard. She's so gangster. Yeah. And you got you you gotta love her new look too. Oh, but she yeah. It's awesome before, but now with the straight hair and the red and white outfit, she looks really great. Now you you know according to your boob list now you know in in this season she might not have gotten her arms set, but she was able to get. Implants. Well, pretty much everybody has in this season. <laughs> well, not to so, mention, as we learn, can't use the left arm, but she's got a nice pack of double D's going. So, <laughs> well, then we also learned just from a couple of quick little shots in episode twenty that Cornelia got back. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So, but um, uh, what about the what about the end of this episode? The twist. Oh. To me, this is one of my favorite twists in the entire series because I knew it was coming. I, it had to. They had to. They really had to cash in on Shirley sometime. Yeah, and sure enough. You know, with her having her her mind wiped like four times, I wouldn't say four, but you know, many many times, she, you know, they they finally just, just reap the benefits of that by just completely letting everything unravel. Or twice or three times. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Mal got her, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, Mal. Uh, Mal, yeah, that's a, Mal that's, screwed with that's her. Lelouch mind wiped her, and then apparently Charles mind wiped her. Yeah. So she's been really messed around with by the Gears, but only really mind wiped twice. Yeah. I forgot to mention my attitude on this episode is. Yeah, it does seem a bit jarring to do a, a goofy school antics episode here, but mm-hmm. I think you sort of need a breather episode after you got the Chinese Federation arc, which had all this drama. And from here, we're going to move on to basically, this is the last last hurrah for Ashford Academy and Code Geass. From this point on, the rest of the show deals entirely with the Emperor, Britan- the War of Britannia, the mysteries of the Geass, and everything. This is basically yeah. the end of Ashford Academy. So you sort of got to slow down because you don't want to rush into things too fast. Yeah. Cool. But I love the fa- and on top of that, I, I, this kind of kind of symbolized with Millie leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, when yeah. Millie leaves to become um, the next Al Roker, you know, she's um, <laughs> and she's Al Roker. Wish she could look that good. I know. You know, I that's know. that is that's another thing that just pops to head to mind real quick. When this episode aired, I remember a lot of people were pissed off because they were like, "What the hell? This is a this is a wasted episode." And I was like the only person who really enjoyed it because the important thing wasn't really just you know they're devoting t- they're just missing time away from the order and such. It's the fact that they actually bought to do an episode to basically show Millie growing up. Yeah, she, I really, I really like her as a character. You know, ignoring the comments about her giant rack, I like right. her. As a, she, she's a very fun character. She's smart. She's playful, and we learned that she's got a lot of depth behind her. But she was hiding it because she didn't want to admit that there was a real world to grow up to beyond hanging around with your friends and being silly. And in this episode, yeah. she finally, she finally accepts that, tries to settle her last few affairs at Ashford, and then moves on and becomes a grown up. And I, I like this episode for that reason. Wait, you mean? You mean Millie has a really big rack? <laughs> never, never noticed. I never noticed that. Oh man! But well, newsflash. <laughs> any any other things? On this well, this episode? this just in: people die when they're killed. But anyway. <laughs> but uh, guess we uh, kind of need to wrap this up. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, um, well, that was uh, just to kind of finish up. That was uh, episode 12, and you know we're pretty much back up to speed on our reviews of Gius. Uh, we're still a little bit ba- behind, but we're going to be catching up. So that was episodes 9, 10, 11, and 12, and we'll be back in a little bit. You're listening to Gundam at MHQ. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Gundam at MAHQ. I'm Amaro NT1, the special guest commentator for this episode, and in this segment, we're going to be discussing a little bit of background information about Code Geass that just popped up recently. An interview with director Goro Taniguchi that popped up in the Roman album that came out just recently. This has been caused... I'm sure you've probably heard about this. It's been causing quite a stir around the internet. If you've been keeping up with Geass, then you've heard about it, probably. It was posted online by GG Fansubs, one of the groups that's been translating the season. And I actually managed to get my hands here on a full translation courtesy of Coda from GG, so, you know, big extra special thanks to her. And this has been causing shockwaves precisely because in this interview, Taniguchi is very critical of himself. He dis- he says that things haven't gone nearly the way he wanted them to, and in the end, he seems to be highly critical of how the show has been going and of his own involvement. And so a lot of people have latched onto this and have taken it to mean that R2 is not nearly what it could have been, and that we're basically just getting an incomplete trash version of what we could have gotten. But let me see, what are some of the key points here? It's basically been known from the start that Sunrise didn't really give Goro Taniguchi everything he wanted with Code Geass. He wanted a 25-episode series with a decent time slot where he could do things a bit more, a little more adult than Gundam, but they didn't trust him, apparently, so he only got 25 episodes and a fraction of the resources and had to piggyback off of other shows that were in work at the time. And he wanted 50 episodes. Yeah, he wanted 50. Um, I'm sorry, did yeah. I say... Yeah, sorry. He said 25 and he got 25. Oh, I'm sorry. Where's my head? But in addition to that, the Code Geass was only about three episodes ahead in terms of production, whereas most anime are about 10. So I think that just gives you a real idea of what sort of trouble they had to deal with. I'm sure everyone knows the infamous episodes 8.5 and 17.5, which are the recap episodes from Season 1. These were actually, these weren't mandated by the staff, as I'm sure people will probably assume that after things like Seed, but this was actually basically thrown in by the, by the production team because they needed to slow things down and get caught up. And because of that, we had the, we had the finale get delayed, and since the time slot had already been scheduled for Darker Than Black, we had the three-month delay between the end of the first season and the actual finale. Now, let me see. In this interview, we actually have some interesting little comments. And the thing that really seems to have struck me just randomly, and I, I'm pro- I should probably open this up to discussion soon, because now I'm just rambling. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You're doing great, man. <laughs> we we we, ram- we ramble ourselves sometimes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> One of the things so that really... Things- podcast and just ramble right. on. That's right. <laughs> One of the things that really stuck with me here is that apparently, a court, in this little interview here, Taniguchi says that he honestly considered 
quitting the anime industry in order to apologize to the fans for how bad season one went compared to his original plan. Wow. A lot this of people. Be a real loss. A lot of people are taking it seriously, but if I can speak frankly for a moment, I think it's basically just what a perfectionist would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone who is an artist is by nature a perfectionist. If you see a beautiful painting, you might look at it and say, wow, this is really well done. The artist is talented. But the artist will look at it, and all he'll see is every single brush stroke and every single smear. All you see is your imperfections in your own work, and if you combine that with the sort of traditional Japanese attitude of being self-effacing, then I think that's pretty much what you've got here. Rather than being an honest expression of, oh man, I really suck, I should quit now, he's basically just beating himself up for minor mistakes. Let's see, what else? Just other interesting notes in this. Um, I'm sure everyone knows at this point, the show was originally planned to be 50 episodes, regardless. And right. even if he didn't get the extension, he wanted to do an OVA or a movie to wrap it up. And if all else fell through, we were just going to get an incomplete ending where Lelouch says something non-definitive non like, get ready, Father, your unfinished business has come back to you. <laughs> but thankfully, that didn't happen. Let's see, what, what's interesting? Just one random little note in this interview that sort of caught my attention here. During the original planning for the first season, they actually considered having the final, se the final scene of the season being the famous Mexican standoff between Lelouch and Suzaku be at the very beginning of the show. And so the entire season would effectively be a flashback to show how they got from being good friends to being at each other's throats. The pull of, the pull of the, the pull, yeah, the Tarantino are the usual suspects with it, where um, the, beginning of the, the beginning is actually the end. But... Um, that would have been really interesting, but it would have given away so much to do that too, in the same in the same respect. But um, it would have made you wonder how they got to that point and how things got so bad. But well, it doesn't necessarily mean things have to be given away. I mean, look at Gurren yeah, Lagann. Gurren Lagann had, of course, the famous opening scene with the supposed future badass Simon. And yeah. even though we had a pretty good idea of how it was going to go, people still loved getting there. Yeah. It wasn't the destination; it was the journey. But that's true. Other little comments in the interview are, they apparently went into some really insane detail here, because Taniguchi comments that in episode 8, which was the founding of the Black Knights, where we have the Hotel Jack, he said the original structure would have taken up three individual episodes. Wow, to, to, to create this. They, the planned ev they planned everything out, wow. like the route the JLF took to get their um, Nightmare Siege Cannon Raiko into place, what happened at the meeting a detailed description of Zero's actions leading up to that episode. And they even had an escape route planned. Just, they had this incredible level of detail. The story goes that, they, that um, head writer Ichiro Okuichi actually wrote 20 scripts for the first episode. And Taniguchi threw out all but five or six. Oh my and, then, God. and then he weeded through those to get the episode we, had, we have now as the first episode. It goes to show that even though they've had to scramble to, you know, recoup the, um, a scramble just uh, to re to reiterate, you know, I, I guess to revise certain episodes and whatnot, that the the staff of Code Geass have become masters at just um, getting to the point. <laughs> they become masters of um, of of getting hitting you hard with a lot of plot elements, like hard and fast, and that may be a detractor, or it may not be the the greatest of um. Uh, uh, things to exhibit in the show, but it just gives this show this fast pace that just, you know, 
hits the ground running and keeps on running. And um, I do like to, I would like to have the full original story if you know if we had the chance to have it. But at the same time, I think that um, they're able to, they're just very adaptable to the situations that you know the the staff have been put in and been able to put on a quality show regardless of um, the circumstances presented, like switching the time slot or, or, um, or, or you know aiming at the audience that they're aiming at now as opposed to before. But yeah, um, I still I still kind of lament the fact that we won't get the show the way it was intended. But um, any anybody else with any thoughts at all? Actually, just really quick, you, you brought oh, up. Let's let finish up some of the stuff. Well, you, brought, oh, you, brought, you brought up something really interesting here. Is of course the time slot change and the time skip. This is very important because in the original plan there was no time skip. Things continued yeah. directly from episode twenty-five on. But the thing is, Sunrise decided this was the point where up to the past the big anime time slot had been Saturday at six p.m. This is the time slot for Seed and Destiny, Full Metal Alchemist, Blood Plus, and the first season of Double O. Yeah. But after Double O, that time slot officially ended. And they decided to move to a new time slot Sunday at 5 p.m. In order to in order to flagship that, they put Code Geass R2 there. Right. It said that producer Kawaguchi actually said before R2 that they had to completely throw out everything when they made up this new season. And initially people took that as the whole, you're not going to believe how amazing this new season is type of talk. But in the end it turns out it was actually, he was being completely honest. They basically had to take everything they had planned for the second half of the show and completely revise it. Dang it. And I think a lot of people seem to attribute the first half of R2 to this because the general feel that it's slower. It's like returning back to the first season because everything from, you know, there's a distinct feeling of deja vu because the first few episodes feel sort of like, slightly upgraded versions of past episodes. Like R2 episode yeah. one feels like season one, episode one. Then you got episode four in both cases involves a prisoner rescue and so on. And so a lot of people seem to be of the attitude that the first half of the show was immensely slowed down by the time change because they had to, they actually had to reintroduce, they had to set it up so if a person came into the show with R2, R they wouldn't be completely lost. I'm trying to think of something else that was brought up. Any other, um, any, anything else that was um, brought up in uh, the discussion that was just controversial as well? I trying to remember a point a point that a friend of mine brought up as well but go ahead i'm sorry just randomly um there was actually in the um comedy anime bamboo blade you know it's based mm -hmm. off of, in the original manga they actually had a cameo by osamu tezuka but they couldn't oh. do that they couldn't do that obviously because he's dead yeah and a couple of the staff members from Gias are working on that show so they convinced tanaguchi to appear in the place of Oka, of tezuka <laughs> so he actually has his anime acting debut in an episode of bamboo blade playing himself Right. And, of course, they also set up one of the characters in the cast to be a huge Taniguchi fangirl who talks about how the next anime he makes is going to be the best anime ever, and it's obvious that they mean Gias. <laughs> but the really important thing to note is in this episode, in that episode of the show, Taniguchi says something along the lines of, after my next great series, I will retire. And in the interview, he comments that after reading that line, he started wondering if the producers could read his mind or something. But yeah, it's just generally noted that there's a lot of elements they had to scale back on, a lot of development they didn't get to do. For example, I think we've all gotten the impression that we all know Suzaku is superhuman, and they've, they've been hinting at that for quite a while. They've also hinted in the first season that it might have something to do with Gios, because we have him freezing up at the ruins on the island, and we have him seeing the ghost image of C2. But unfortunately, that subplot had to be dropped. 
Additionally, they were going to go into more detail about the Stotfeld family, including the possibility that Callan's beloved older brother Naoto might actually still be alive. But from what I've heard, they had to cut that as well, as well as actually getting to meet her father. That's true. I was kind of looking forward to that. People were pretty sure that when she got captured in R2, that she would get dragged back to the homeland and we'd get to see her meet with her father. But instead, they just took her to Area 11 and had her sit there in a cage for like four episodes wearing that same dress. <laughs> so what's uh, let me let me ask you this because uh, I kind of go more into you know kind of what what's the thought behind process of him saying this is is he just not I mean I understand that he's not happy but is this kind of a is this something too that he um, he's trying to get back at maybe sunrise or trying to kind of take a stand or what because I'm I mean, honestly not quite sure how to take it. I don't understand how you would do something that a lot of people are considering as a very good product and then just kind of coming out later saying, well, you know, you think this was good. It would have been this if I would have had my way. So I, I just I kind of don't understand that to an extent. Like, I understand being unhappy with your job and how your boss tells you how you need to do things, especially when you see it in a different way. But, uh, you know. I don't know. I know you're trying. I know it's asking you to think for him, but well, I mean, like I said, obviously, I can't get into Taniguchi's head and tell you exactly what he's thinking. But based entirely off his comments and everything that I've heard about him from people like Salas Galvea and Koshimizu, basically, mm-hmm. the man is a perfectionist. I would say to the degree of possibly being anal retentive. Wow. There are all sorts of stories. For example, just before R two. One of the animators posted a message on her blog saying that they spent three days animating a single scene, which turned out to be the scene from the first episode where he moves the Black Queen chess please. And supposedly his perfectionism and his desire to get everything right, absolutely, is part of the reason Sunrise didn't trust him, despite the fact that he's been behind series like Gunsword and Planates. Okay. And Scribe also, which is another Sunrise production. And Infinite Revised, which I, you know, that which which I, I love. But um, on top of that, you think it was because... Um, Sakurai, it's far from perfect. I love the show, but <laughs> no offense to him. It's far from perfect. <laughs> so. Well, what about but. what about um, his desire to... Um, he, he had an audience that was dedicated to the show when it was when the first season was on. Um, and he kind of lost that time slot to an earlier time slot, which means he had to change the show. You think that... Um, the, the change of the the audience viewing also kind of discouraged him too because he was writing this this show originally for a, a you know a fan base that would um that you know that would be able to handle some you know more adult situations and then he had to kind of you know change the content up or basically do you do you think that um his audience being changed on him and the fact they had to change the content of the series was probably his main motivator made main motivator in his um in his discouragement on you know con- I, I don't think the audience really changed is the thing, and I think Taniguchi realizes that. I mean, you got to consider Code Geass has, despite Sunrise's beliefs, become an insane hit. Just, just to give you an idea, for the last two years, Kira Yamato has topped the New Type magazine character poll. Not just right. for male characters, but for all characters. Mm-hmm. Lelouch has Lelouch came along and he's he kicked Kira off the top spot and he has been there since August, <laughs> since October 2006. And there's no what? Lelouch has been the favorite char- anime character in Japan for practically two years straight and there's no sign that he's going to be slowing down anytime soon. He's getting Not competition. Only that, but 
Sorry, go ahead. He's getting competition from the likes of Alto Sautome and Setsuna FCA, but I don't think he's going to lose it. I think Lelouch is going to be able to carry it for a bit longer thanks to all the side materials and the interest that Gias has built up, that they built up doing during the three-year, the three-month break between the, the season and the finale. And they just managed to keep that momentum up with sound episodes and bonuses and all the merchandise. So I don't really think that the audience changed. I think Taniguchi's discouragement is, it's just him. It's, it's what he would have felt regardless of the time shift, if things didn't go how he wanted. And within a year of its appearance, it's been parodied in four separate anime series, which I think is a testament to how big it must be if oh, yeah. it's getting that much yeah. exposure. In and four different shows have parodied it because it's well, that of big of a breakout hit. Well, I mean, of course, you got Konata, who is apparently a gigantic fangirl of Kias. Yeah, it shows up. Couple, it shows up in Zetsubo Sensei as well. Yeah, um, uh-huh. I'd say the Combat Butler. Oh, of course. And what was the fourth one? I forgot. That that uh, the parodied Code Geass. Hmm. I don't know. So I, I guess I, I'm sure that I'm okay. sure that his uh, comments about this just drove uh, the fandom crazy. Well, actually, it's worth pointing out that the last little bit of the interview is they ask him for a message to the fans, and he basically says, "You know, to all you people who have given me a job despite the fact that I don't de- that I deserve to be out on the streets, I want to say thank you." So I think that that illustrates his character a lot right there. Yeah. To think that you deserve to be unemployed is just that 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 says a whole lot. The man yeah. is extremely self-facing. I think with uh, this this uh, this news coming out, unfortunately, there's there's that segment of you know fans, if you want to call them fans, I would just prefer to say trolls who yeah. just want to hate the show no matter what, and they'll seize upon this evidence of, oh, this show's a piece of shit, blah, 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 this is why, it's getting hacked up by Sunrise, blah, 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 corporate production, pandering to fans, and I would say to all people, just shut the hell up, please. Um, uh, you know, do, you want, do you want to know honestly what this reminds me of? Do you remember a couple of months ago, someone on 4chan made up a fake interview with director Masashi Ikeda claiming that Gundam Wing was written on a dare to be the absolute worst, most cliche anime he could make in an attempt to see if it would still be popular? Yeah. It was so blatantly obviously fake, but 90% of the responses to it were, of course, everything makes sense now! And that pissed me the hell off. Because people yeah. wanted to believe that Gundam Wing is a cheap piece, piece of cheap trash. And... This interview was doing the same thing, basically, for Code Geass. People want to believe that it's a train wreck, it's horrible, it's garbage, it deserves to be at the bottom of the heap with stuff like Pokemon. Yeah. Oh. Hey. Rather, than, I would... rather than being treated as one of the biggest mech anime of the 2000s. Yeah. 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 Now, what yeah, I would say right. about all of this news is, you know, yeah, I'm not happy that uh, the show didn't go the way that Tanaguchi was planning to go, because that was, you know pretty much in line with the way I was expecting it to go. I was expecting it to see to keep building up the momentum that was established in season one, so I'm not so hot on some of the repetition and the slowdown pace in the first half of season two. However, the second half has really got things back on track, and I'm wondering if uh, he's pretty much back to where he expected to be at this point in the game. So just because things didn't go the way he planned, it doesn't mean that the show is bad in any way, yeah, shape, or not form. Not at all. Not at all. Just the last, the second half here has just been, in my opinion, completely incredible. Each it episode, has. each episode adds to it. Just you start off with thirteen with the big surprise at the end of that one, and it just mm-hmm. builds from there. 
And as we've seen just recently in the recently aired episode 20, there's obviously no sign that it's going to stop. I think it's going to build and build and build until we get this incredible climax. I hesitate yeah. to say I hesitate to say epic because it gets thrown around so much these days, but yeah. it's going to be one hell of an ending. Do you yeah. think so? I think, I think I'm, I'm hoping for it. I mean, the, the, yeah. you yeah, know, it it's be been too. back on track. And, you know, at this point, before the show's even over, to compare it to actual train wrecks like, say, Destiny uh, is premature and, I think, uh, unwarranted and really uh, not a good comparison, even if Look. Code Geass was complete. Most of the complaints basically are the show isn't going exactly the way I want it to, so it sucks. And fr- yeah. <laughs> frankly, those people can bite me because yeah. 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 there was a huge backlash when um, when Nunnally, um was was supposedly you know or, or you know what happened after the um, the incidents of uh, seventeen. You know, there was a huge backlash among a lot of viewers after that, and. Um, it, it, those are some of the people that I think of when you say that is, you know, they, they, they now hate the show because, you know, what happened? And it's like, I mean, how could you not see that coming? I mean, seriously. Yeah. And it's funny. And I, it's funny that, you know, a lot of people complain that the show just panders to fans, you know, which yeah. has sort of become the new meme. But it's like you're, you, you say that it panders to fans and you're pissed off about how it's turning out. But that means that you want the show to pander to you. When you should be entertained well, by watching it and not expecting what the heck is going to happen. Basically, the, the people who hate the show are going to hate the show no matter what. Nothing, yeah. the, nothing that the staff can do sort, short of sending them bags of money and beautiful women is going to change their minds. So who cares about their opinion? And there's, a, and there's a reason why a lot of these fans aren't in the business, and that's because, they're, you know, because the way they want it to go is the predictable way. And I mean, I don't understand why he did this interview, but I would tell everybody out there that, you know, take this stuff with a grain of salt because i mean i'm sure there's plenty of things that we've all done in our own lives where yeah we thought well i could have done this or my original idea was to do this but for whatever reason i had to do it this way so like uh, everybody said here that you know let's just see how this plays out and then go from there because um i will i pretty much would say at the end of uh you know and and on this December thirty first, two thousand ten, when they released the you know the best shows of the of the of the two thousands, I'm sure this show is going to be top five yeah. in there. So you know, just just you know, let's not get too freaked out about this stuff, folks. No problem. I have one last question. Sure. What is the what's the whole debate about the ratings of the show? Because um, I hear I hear things about the ratings are good, the ratings are terrible, and it's like, well. I mean, it can't be that bad because, you know, the the show is, like you were saying earlier, Amaro, where it's, you know, it's on the cusp of, um, you know, everybody's, you know, it, it's in the social conscious of almost every otaku as of lately. And, you know, it's in all the magazines and Lelouch tops the charts. I mean, do you, what, what's your insight on the ratings of the show currently in Japan? Uh, I'm afraid I don't understand the Japanese, you know, the rating system quite well, but... I'm given to understand that anime typically does not perform well, just as a con- just as naturally. And Code Geass's ratings tend to be something in the neighborhood of 1% or 2%. And so there are a few people out there who take this to mean, you know, the show sucks, it's bombing. But the thing that really matters is DVD sales. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you go to anime... And Code Geass has never disappointed. Yeah, you can see there in, uh, like, like a, the top 10 A&S list of posted, anime. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, like, four slots are sometimes uh, Code Geass. Sorry. No, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you. Sorry. 
just yesterday, Anime News Network posted a little article saying that they have currently shipped 100,000 plus discs for R2 Disc 1, either Blu-ray or Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um. And the series so far has shipped nine hundred thousand d- discs. So the ratings really don't matter. It is making a killing in the DVD and the Blu-ray sales, and yeah. that's really what matters for anime because the they're not going to they're not going to top the ratings. I mean, you don't expect stuff like Justice League to top the ratings when you got Lost and all this on T and Twenty Four on TV. And yeah. in Japan, it's no different. Anime doesn't matter on the ratings; it matters in the sales. And Code Geass is making a killing. Yeah. So. The one thing I'd have to say about that is, I mean, if it's so bad, it it didn't take long for uh, Adult Swim to to announce that they're going to show R two uh, oh, yeah. right after. So I mean, and I mean, because I don't remember them ever doing that with a show, um, you know, being that quick. Yeah, stupid, and, stupid kids don't have to wait three months like the rest of us did. Yeah, <laughs> we had to walk fifteen yeah. miles in the snow to get our code gears, and we liked it. <laughs> yeah, so we enjoyed the journey. I, I guess. I mean. It's, I guess it's kind of interesting. It's a kind of an interesting thing, but from like what one of you guys said earlier, it does kind of sound like this guy might be a little disturbed himself um, when it comes to things because, I mean, you're saying that you don't deserve a job. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's like depression like everyone credits to Tomino so much as just being very modest in the Japanese mold yeah. and being an extreme perfectionist. And basically yeah. those two couple together to have him come off looking like, oh, I'm a piece of crap. I don't deserve to be directing anime. You guys are so great. <laughs> well, I mean, I can, I can kind of understand Sunrise, too, in the aspect of if they're going to put this money behind it, okay, this guy's a perfectionist. But sometimes perfectionists can be counterproductive. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it's one of these things where, okay, you know, um, you want to make sure you're double-checking, making sure everything's cool. But if it's taking... I don't know. Let's just say the uh, the production of a show from start to finish, from the concepts to drawing it to recording it is, let's say it takes uh, a month. Well, if it's taken this guy three months, you know, it's it's not monetarily and, you know, just it's not working for them. I mean, it, it's just, you know, you're constantly rewriting everything. You're, you know, you're not you're not keeping a flow. So I kind of see both ends of the spectrum here, but Oh yeah, just one good. just one more random comment since we're talking about code gears and DVD sales. Yep. Um, I just really hope people will just shut the hell up about the whole Pizza Hut thing in America. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. It's this just is not Pizza Hut the show. It is code yeah. gears. Pizza Hut Stop helped make the show work. It doesn't. Listen, yeah. man, I want to see my Meat Lovers animated. Come on now. Meat Lovers? <laughs> no, meat, you should see the Japanese menu. They have some really messed up pizzas there. Ooh, man, they seafood like... lovers, man? Heck yes, man. Give me my eel. Give me my slice of eel, man. I'm ready to go. <laughs> no, no, the funny thing is he's not, he, not even that far off, seriously. Ooh. If you actually look at the pizza C2 eats in the show, she's got stuff like shrimp on it. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, and they're not exaggerating. Most of this is real pizza that Japanese Pizza Hut makes. Darn it, man. Makes me wish I could call up Japanese Pizza Hut and they fly the fly pizza into me. (laughs) (laughs) That that would cost a fortune. (laughs) Just random random little note here. Um, we were talking a little about Sunrise. Apparently, public enemy number one for Geass fans is producer Seiji Takeda. According to the backstory, Taniguchi pitched his original idea for Geass, which was idealistic young soldier and his ideological clashes with his bitter, war-hardened veteran commander while on the battlefield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Takeda rejected this initial idea. So we went back and we had, he revised the idea, had a little input from Clamp, and then we got this Code Geass. Just real quick, despite what you might think, 
Suzaku did not evolve from the idealistic soldier. Lelouch did, and Suzaku evolved from the bitter soldier. But anyway, things continued. Takeda was apparently the one who was behind the whole, we don't trust Taniguchi with the full resources. And then just to cap it all off, I'm sure you all remember the incident way back when, when people insisted that the show was a smack in America for the War on Terror. Yeah. 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 At the special screen, um, around the screening of episodes 24 and 25, Taniguchi basically went on record as saying, no, that's not what it is. I know that people sometimes do political messages in their shows, but I just wanted to tell a fun story. At the same time, Takeda came out and said that Britannia was meant to represent World War II Japan and that Area 11 was meant to represent things like Manchuria. And he basically said the whole show was supposed to be a lesson to the Japanese about how we think we're, we think we're that amazing, but we're really not that different from the people we consider monsters. And the thing, oh, wow. is, the thing is, that guy's full of crap. He had nothing to do he with is. the production of the show, so who is he to say what the show means? Exactly. So, so like I said, he's sort of become the scapegoat for what goes wrong with the show, sort of like... Mitsuo Fukuda and Chiaki Morisawa for Seed Destiny. It, it, it's, it's true, though. I guess um, it's a clear-cut case of him um, trying to get up in there and um, and take credit for something that... Um, I mean, this is just my, my, my observation, but take credit for something that, you know, he he, um, he shot down at the beginning. And I, I don't know. It, it, it does sound like a very nice um, explanation of things, but if, if it's not coming from Taniguchi himself, I don't consider it gospel, quite honestly. Because you know, in the end, you know, he's considered what he's considered what the word of God. Well, well, he <laughs> and he and he and head writer Okuuchi are the co-creators. Yeah. And unlike Tomino, they were smart enough to hold on to the rights. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's freaking awesome. Don't expect to see Code Geass and Wing Destiny anytime soon. Basically, well, <laughs> the end result of what we're saying here is shut up and watch the show. Pretty much, and take it for what it is. It's just it's just a fun experience. It's, it's not trying to replace Gundam. It's not trying to be Evangelion. It's not trying to replace Star Wars. It's just trying to be a fun and entertaining anime. Shut up! Shut up! Get over your little hang-ups. Watch it. Enjoy it. Yeah, this is That's not Shakespeare. Oh. This is not Shakespeare. And stop overanalyzing everything. Sometimes Suzaku did it! Suzaku did it! Suzaku did just, it! Just, guys, just sit back and enjoy it. Sometimes Suzaku a hot dog's it. just a hot dog. There's not symbolism behind everything. Yes. No, exactly. Suzaku did it! <laughs> Despite all the evidence to the contrary, he did it! Well, you've been listening to Gundam and MAHQ, and we'll be right back. Gundam these glasses, son! Yes, sir! I Gundam thee! Next on level nine. Yeah, we know we know there's like there's plenty of uh, video game podcasts and everything, but we're gonna do the best to uh, make this as fun as possible for everybody. We'll try and keep it light. Um, we will we'll go into some detail on some things, but uh, you know we'll, we have a certain amount of knowledge on some things. But you know, I won't profess to say that we know everything. But um, I do. yeah, that's true. You, you do. <laughs> I know what sucks. He's gonna bail me out. Joe's gonna bail me out. Uh, when I'm at a loss for words, so that'll probably be kind of obvious, but that's okay. Indeed, he is. Your sources are quite vast, and we'll uh, we we will try and take advantage. Totally, of Totally, man. Nintendo Power. That's where I get <laughs> most of my knowledge. <laughs> from, Nintendo Power from Nintendo Power. Me, it's IGN and Game Informer. The gaming section of Maxim. <laughs> the gaming section and, and, and oh, Playboy. The, you mean Maxim, the the magazine that you know for about four paragraphs they talk about how every new game is like the greatest game ever. Hell yeah, man! <laughs> awesome. Every game awesome. is awesome. I like that. Have you not I played like Deadliest Catch? <laughs> God, Deadliest Catch. Hell's yeah! Jesus, criminal. I get excited every time I pull up a new pot. <laughs> And see 30 crabs. <laughs> who the hell 
green lighted that crap. That I've seen I've seen footage of that. Shush. It's pretty damn bad. It's pathetic. Oh my god. It's like who greenlit this? That's oh Deadliest catch, son. Pick it That's up. It's almost as bad as when they greenlit the shield. <laughs> that game was pretty freaking awful. Jesus. So anyway, uh yeah, we're you know, we're gonna wax nostalgic. We'll probably uh, talk about some old school stuff. I fancy myself a little bit of the old school gamer. I mean, you give me anything from like Nintendo and Genesis onward, and and we we got a conversation. So um, greatest system ever made, Nintendo eight bit. I dare, I defy anybody <laughs> to interject and say otherwise. Your your nice shiny Xbox three sixty that you love, that that sexy looking looking PlayStation three that you got, wouldn't be possible if Nintendo hadn't saved. Like video game industry's ass. 360 has no damn game that can compete with the such likes like Gogo 13. Beat that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> what, what, what are you going to do about it? What you going to do about it? Huh? What? Oh, it got kind of quiet. But that, <laughs> well, I'll be first to admit, that's because I'm fucking old. I'm tired of living with fat things like healthcare. Anybody else living dangerously in all this, man? This, it's crazy. When you only have healthcare, man, you got to go undefeated. You know what I'm talking about? No illnesses, no injuries. You got to be healthy, man. It's like I'm Super Mario with one man left. In need of a one-up, you know? Go away, Todd. If you want to come in, you are going to have to break down the goddamn door. Welcome back to Gundam at MHQ. This is Chris, and uh, this is the end for episode 19, our Kogius Super Special with a side of Gundam. We look at episodes 5 through 12, Kogius bringing us to the halfway point of R2. We also uh, had some, some analysis on some comments from a uh, interview with director Goro Taniguchi. And then we also did our uh, eternally running Gundam Roundup, this time on Gundam F91. So I'd like to thank Amaro NT1. Uh, he's always on our forums providing uh, great Kogius information. And of course, he wrote all of the mecha profiles that are on MHQ for Kogius. So thanks a lot for joining us on this uh, discussion. Really uh, elevated it to a new level. Well, thanks. It's been a real pl- it's been a real blast, and if you guys need me to come back, I'm always willing. No problem. I'm sure we'll have you back. Consider yourself drafted. <laughs> Woohoo! You make, well, you I'm make. looking forward to it. Now, now you must dress your dog in mobile suit Gundam. <laughs> no, sorry, I own cats. Oh. Oh, okay. Well, don't 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 worry. I'm sure those will be coming out next. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure his cats will fight back with every inch. Oh yeah, nails, <laughs> the claws. <laughs> but yeah, so this... that's the end oh. for us. Uh, any any anybody have anything uh, important to say? Uh, pretty much, um, everybody. Um, if you get the chance, uh, check out the websites. Uh, mahq.net, as you all know, Gundam.net is the site of our um, our show blog, and um, and you find the latest episodes posted there. And on um, and if you need to reach us by email, by all means, send us um. 
messages, um, send any email messages to GundamMAHQ at gmail.com. And also you can find us on iTunes just by looking up Gundam. And I'd, I'd have to say once again that um, uh, anybody with some listener-submitted articles, please go to the Mechatalk forums under Neo's News. And the painful things that I brought to you today are some of the things I'd like to see because... Uh, <laughs> Because they're, they're almost too hard to believe. <laughs> so I'm actually going to go home and I think I'm going to cry in a corner after hearing about Mobile Suit Pundum. <laughs> going to kill you all. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure the next time that, I'm, that the three of us are together in person, Chris will probably uh, choke me to death. So, and uh, they'll, they'll probably find my replacement the next episode. Oh, man. Revenge is a ditch best served cold. <laughs> Thank you, Con. And, and with multiple knife wounds. <laughs> well, that's it for us, guys. And uh, we'll be back uh, with yet another episode at some point. And we'll be... Episode 20. Pontificating about uh, Mecca and other stuff, as we usually do. So that's that's an anniversary us. episode. Oh, yeah. Episode 20. That's, that's the middle of the college years. Yep. <laughs> but we're still not old enough to drink yet. One more year. One more episode. <laughs> one more episode and we'll get drunk. We'll do the episode yes. drunk. Right on, man. There you go. 21 and over. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's it. That's right. it for this time. You've been listening to Gundam at MAHQ, and we'll see you next time. Peace out. Peace. Take care. The Earth Sphere Alliance rules the outlying colonies with an iron fist. I'm sure God would understand the steps we're taking. Gundam at MHQ is a Shinjuku station in MHQ production. And the number one reason I like being an actor. Get to read well-crafted dialogue like get the f*** out of here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>